Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. It's time to talk about the DC Comics for the week of February 1st, 2022. Uh, I can't believe we're in February. First month of the year flew by. Yes. It's great to be back with uh, with Rocky. Uh, we're Don't worry, everybody. We're still doing the Spawn Daily. We're just talking about it. Rocky, once everything settles down for him, we'll, we'll jump back in. Uh, but in the meantime, yeah, it's great to be able to, to collaborate on these weekly DCs and... You know, not not to say we're too light here, but compared to what we've had the last few weeks, it's almost half. I think oh. one week we had eighteen books. This week, I think there's nine, but eight books, nine books that we're talking about. So, uh, a solid week, even though we we have um, fewer books. Some of the books are are pretty important in terms of, uh, you know, their effect on the DC universe. I'll say so. Yeah, overall, wasn't wasn't too bad of a week. Uh, maybe I'm just. I felt the relief of only having to read nine books. <laughs> what do you think of this week, Rocky? Uh, yeah, I, I was relieved that it was only nine titles. And it also allowed me to dive deep into uh, Justice League Incarnate, which really sort of resets and retells the story of all the DC crises in a way that I think is a little bit more manageable and, uh, frankly, uh, digestible for a lot of uh, long-term fans and even newer fans for the DC universe. Uh, just... Uh, by by Joshua Williamson, and I really enjoyed Dark Knights of Steel. I thought Suicide Squad. This is the final issue going into uh, War for Earth uh, three, and uh, we get an opening issue of uh, Monkey Prince, which I could uh, give give some. Uh, I wanted to give uh, June Lun Yang uh, the benefit of my, my time and dedication to, to see what I could get out of it, and and I'm glad I did. And yeah. And uh, so it was, I actually, I, I quite enjoyed this. And I think there there's even a potential uh, slight origin tweak to the origin of uh, Superman or as it pertains to World of Krypton uh, that we'll talk about that, you know, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I'm, I'll be curious to hear your thoughts. And yeah, and we only got nine to talk about, so we can maybe uh, go off on tangents a little bit more. Not that we necessarily want to, but we can if we want to now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a good point. I'm glad you mentioned Monkey Prince. That was an interesting ride. Uh, the other thing I feel like, you know, pointing to the fewer, fewer number of books is that some of these mini series that have been going on for a while are sort of winding up, and it feels like there's not as many coming to replace them. I, I I don't know if that's purposeful. I don't know if that's actually true. We do know there's some other projects coming down the line, uh, like Aquaman, War of the Amazons. You mentioned War for Earth 3, which is sort of a, a crossover between titles. Uh, or is it DC sort of gearing up for whatever comes next after Justice League Incarnate? I guess we'll have to, to wait and see. So uh, let's go ahead and kick it off with Dark Knights of Steel, written by Tom Taylor, art in this particular issue by Ben Gall. Colors by Arif Prianto, letters by Wes Abbott. Main cover is by Yasmin Putri, and then there's two variant covers. There's one by Bengal, and there's one by Joshua Middleton that I specifically wanted to call out because you can see it behind me if you're watching us on YouTube. It's this Harley as like a minstrel playing a lute, I guess it's probably called. I, I can imagine that a lot of people are going to be picking that up. I, I think that'll be a pretty pretty popular cover. Uh, as far as the story goes, it's a bit of a flashback here, right? So we see Alfred and Bruce sitting around by a campfire, and Alfred's basically telling Bruce his his origin story, this version of, of Bruce, who we learned a few issues ago, at, just moments before Jor-El's death, that he was actually the son of Jor-El and Martha Wayne. Um, and so that was like, wait, why... 
it wasn't necessarily common knowledge. Superman or Clark didn't necessarily, Kal-El, I guess, uh, in this uh, reality, didn't know that. Uh, and you kind of wondered how it all played out. But what was great was the the way it happened with Jor-El and Lara sort of be, being uh, these aliens that came and stayed hidden um, on this version of, of Earth, but then eventually revealed themselves when it came time to save the, the planet from this big volcanic eruption. They tried to remain hidden. They gave all the information uh, that Jor-El had discovered. Obviously, he had a lot of experience with uh, with planet planet-wide destruction based on the fact they came from Krypton. So they did their research. They used their powers to, to find out what was going on. And they made plans. You know, again, Laura and Jor-El, both scientists, they made plans that would help uh, Thomas and Martha Wayne save their kingdom. But they gave it to Thomas's uh, kind of advisor, if you will, which happened to be Alexander Luther. So he wasn't necessarily inclined. Lex Luthor wasn't necessarily inclined to, to give that information to uh, to Thomas and Martha Wayne. So at that moment when the uh, the volcano explodes, Laura and Jorel had to make a choice, you know, flee to another world or reveal their existence, basically. And they chose to reveal their existence and save these people that they had, even though they'd remained hidden from, they had been observing and, and believed them to be good people. So end up best friends with Thomas and Martha Wayne. And then Alexander Luther is banished from the kingdom for you know not helping save it basically and then uh in those moments where Jorel and laura are eventually killed by alexander luther they they basically tell uh, i think it was martha's dying which tells the the uh the elves hey rule in our place until bruce is ready so you know, people are not going to accept a, a bastard, if you will. Uh, so a, a lot to unpack in this issue and, and certainly continues to be a very interesting and divergent version of the, the DC universe. And having Lex Luthor as the big bad, the green man, as we were told about, is interesting as well because he ends up with some kryptonite-powered uh, abilities based on apparently pieces of Krypton reached earth. And then when this volcano exploded, it, uh, it revealed some of those or unleashed some of those pieces of, of kryptonite and, uh, and Luther felt drawn to those and is using them. But what's interesting is it's a, but he wears a green lantern ring. So it's well, I'm like, not, I'm not sure if it's actually kryptonite. I, I, I think maybe the green is just solid, just the green lantern. Maybe it, maybe it's just from the green, the green lantern, it could be an Alan Scott ring dealing with a green flame. It might not even be kryptonite powered. It might be a combination of the two. You might be right, but I thought that was a little bit unclear myself. I wasn't sure because it's well, yeah, combining I mean, the it, Joker and he's combining Lex Luthor and he's combining Green Lantern into sort of like a, those three characters are combined into one. Yeah. So it's very interesting. Yeah, the, yeah, because he definitely has a Joker look, and you're right. It, it's never called kryptonite. Uh, it just says when the volcano exploded, it. Uh, the mountain contained more th than potential destruction, and we see this big green rock. Um, so I, you know, I'm inferring that it's kryptonite, yeah. but perhaps it, it's not. You're right. So, okay. uh, yeah, a lot to still be unpacked here. Um, and <laughs> it's one of the, this is one of those series where you hear other creators go, "Why didn't anybody ever think of this before?" <laughs> Obviously, it's out of continuity. Obviously, this doesn't really affect anything that's going on in the, in the regular. 
DCU, uh, but still a, a fascinating sort of character study to get at the the heart of these characters. And yeah, they don't always act the way they would act in you know the regular DCU. Uh, but I think if there are liberties taken, it's always in service of the story from from uh, from Tom Taylor. Um, as far as the art goes, I, I've seen Bengal's art be a little cleaner than this. It, it felt a little a little rough for me, uh, but I thought the color work brought it together pretty well from Prianto because it, uh, even though the style is a little bit different than uh, than what we've had previously from Yasmin Putri, the the consistency of color, I think, will make it less obvious. Uh, but you know, I wouldn't go so far as to say I was disappointed in the art, but when I went back through it and looked a little closer, it just, again, I've, I think I've seen Bengal be just a little more detailed. It's felt... Um, not quite as polished as I've seen his art before, but overall pretty good. And I, I, I expect this story to continue to be really popular with both Tom Taylor fans and DC fans. What do you think, Rocky? Yeah, I really liked it. And uh, just a quick point that when the green man, uh, and he's, he's basically referred to as the green man slash the cruel Joker. It's interesting to note that when he uses his, his power in the green lantern ring, he never uses kryptonite like Jor-El and, and Martha, uh, pardon me, Jor-El and Laura are not weakened. Uh, by the the Green Man's attack, so it's not kryptonite yeah, that he's true. utilizing. So yeah, it's, you might so, be right. Yeah. yeah, so he might not. So I don't think, or at least at this point in the story, I don't think that Alexander Luther is aware of of kryptonite. At least maybe this early on in in the story as it's told here. I really like what I find fascinating here is the is the strength of the friendship between Jorel and Laura and and uh, Thomas and Mar and King King. Thomas and Queen Martha Wayne, because I mean, despite the fact that I mean, clearly uh, Jorel and Laura obviously uh, gained the friendship of King King Thomas and Queen Martha because of their of the, they saved the kingdom from the volcano and they banished, of course, as a result of that uh, Alexander Luther, who was just pretending to be this sort of like low life idiot, but gesture jester. And but what what's interesting is. Despite the fact that there was a there was an affair between Martha and Jorel that led to the birth of Bruce Wayne, who clearly must have some degree of superpowers, it's extraordinary the trust here that at the end when 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 Thomas and Martha are both killed by the Green Man, the 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 promise that that Martha uh, basically gets Laura to tell her is you know you know don't don't tell the people that Bruce you know because Bruce is a bastard. You know, but don't you know? But they'll they'll eventually come to accept Bruce because you you're going to convince the people that that our son Bruce is the rightful king, even though he's he's a bastard. He's a bastard son, like the like a John Snow of uh, <laughs> of King of Throne of uh, Queen of <laughs> Queen of Thrones or whatever. Um, the reality is is that the the trust that Martha must have, uh, and you know what I find extraordinary here is Jorel is dead, and the only person that really knows this secret appears to be Alfred and Martha. And if Martha and Alfred if Marf, if Martha and Alfred were to die, then the only people would know that the rightful heir is actually Bruce. Uh that's quite extraordinary. And I so I I it's you know it it's, it adds a very interesting element here and to what extent is is Laura who is Queen Laura governing the kingdom is is she really going to be able to convince the kingdom that Bruce, who everybody, according to Martha, before she died, she said the people think of him. No, he's not. Think of him like a 
a bastard anyway. It's interesting. I, I don't know how they're ever going to convince the kingdom that, that Bruce is the rightful king. I'm So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. I like the politics here. I like the story. I really like how it's done. That the, um, I just... Uh, I really, the, the colors here are fantastic. I like the Alexander Luther, how this plays in, because there's still a prophecy. There's a prophecy that, that arose from all this. And I wonder, is is the prophecy linked to the arrival of of Jor-El and Laura on, on, on the, on earth? Is the prophecy linked to the, to the, to the green lantern ring or this green flame that ended up in the volcano once it erupted, Alexander Lucer found it. There's a lot of questions here. And then we got the machinations with the Amazons and uh, the kingdom of thunder with uh, uh, <laughs> the Pierce family and the King Pierce and who was killed last issue. And I really like the dynamics here. I love this mythology that Tom Taylor is establishing. And I think the art works really well. The colors just really pop off the page. Kudos to Arif Prianto on the colors. Just He does a masterful use of the greens here. And I'm really looking forward to, to where this is going. Yeah. Uh, and I, the only thing that I'll say, you know, you called it an affair. Uh, they, they, Tom Taylor does go out of his way to say it was one it was you know the weakness one of one night uh but yeah i mean clearly they and it does drive a wedge between that friendship that that, that strength of that friendship is is very much apparent in this book uh, and that's one thing that neither you nor i mentioned uh and what alfred stresses to, to bruce they were you know these four jorel and and laura and then thomas and martha were very very close friends and in, in that moment of weakness for whatever reason Jorel and Martha make this mistake. Bruce comes of it. Thomas was unable to bear children. So he, you know, the fact that Bruce is born, his, it could have gone two ways. Thomas could have completely rejected him, uh, sent him away, could, could have done any number of things, but instead he grew to love him. The son he would not have had otherwise loved him, you know, as much as any father would love a, a, a son, even though he technically wasn't uh, his, Thomas's biological son. And, and Bruce healed that rift and that, tremendous friendship between the four of them was healed in that way. And, and Alfred stresses that. And I, I imagine that the reason I bring it up is I imagine that that will continue to be a, a plot point in the story and may that, that the fact that Bruce healed the rift may come back to play uh, a role in the plot later on. That wouldn't surprise me. That yeah. feels like an, an emotional part of the story that Tom Taylor enjoys circling back to. Yeah. And I think another Girl. open question is why, why in the, did Jorel and Laura, did King Jorel and Queen Laura, you know, why are they, why have they imprisoned? You know, why did they imprison all the other would be metahumans like the Flash and, and a lot of the other characters that we know are actually in prison that we saw when, when Kalal, Prince Kalal went to uh, interrogate the one person that had uh, assassinated, uh, when he assassinated his father, I think it was Ollie. Uh, you know why? Why did why do the why do Jorel and Laura? Why did they fear all these other metahumans? Uh, is that related to the prophecy as well? I just I find it really interesting, and there's so much more of this story to come. And all in we've this is only the fourth issue in, and this is twelve issues long. And I'm thinking, is he going to be able to? I have a feeling we're going to have a lot of unanswered questions by the end of the twelfth issue because we're all already four issues in. We have a lot of unanswered questions here in a good way because it's wetting the appetite, and I'm I really want to know these answers, but I question whether or not all this can be done in another eight issues. Uh, I, I feel like we've got, I was thinking the other way. I was thinking, man, we've gotten a big chunk of story. A lot's happened in only four issues. So yeah, I, th I think we'll get there. 
as far as imprisoning the other heroes, all, all I can imagine is the paranoia of the of the kingdom, just a, you know the average subjects, based on the fact that their beloved king and queen were killed by a metahuman. So that's the only thing I can I can speculate, and it does seem as though you know obviously the Pierce kingdom kind of rise split splits off because you know we see Jefferson Pierce here. And he's a member of, of you know, it's, it seems like it's a United Kingdom. And then I think based on the fact that, hey, their their beloved king and queen, Thomas and Martha, are killed by a metahuman, the last thing they want is to be then ruled by Jor-El and, and Laura. There's already some people that have suspicion. I imagine uh, Lex Luthor's in the background sowing dissent as well um, with the green man. So, yeah, there's a lot of political machinations going on. So we'll have to wait and see how that plays out. You bet. Uh, okay, up next we have World of Krypton number three that Rocky referenced earlier. Uh, it's written by Robert Venditti, drawn by Michael Avon Oming, colored by Nick Falardi, lettered by Hassan Otsman uh, Elhow. Uh, yeah, this one's uh, interesting. I love the main cover by Miko Suyan. Uh, what were your thoughts on this issue? Uh, what, what I found uh, very curious about this issue is it... Uh... A, c- a couple of things. Uh, the one, there's one thing that bothered me, and boy, is, is it a nitpick. But Jarrell, at one point in this issue, manages to uh, he goes to a basically a, a, a pet shelter, like a dog shelter, and he acquires a dog, and he donates. A, he gives a donation to the shelter, and it bothered me that the woman that gave him introduced him to Crypto actually gave Crypto the name and and. I just remember, I just remember an old Superman story. I don't know if I read it in a in a Superman uh, blue and red and blue story, but I, I kind of like the idea of young Kal El when Kal El's born, naming the naming his dog or them naming the dog. That's a minor little nitpick here, but uh, <laughs> but here's here's what's fascinating about this that I thought was particularly uh, interesting, and that is that uh, it would appear that. Jorel in this issue manages he becomes head of the science council because him and and one of the one of the other scientists that he's working with uh this Nera Nera Ur who is I believe probably related to this the the phantom zone criminal Jaxer they they convince the science council that Krypton that the core of Krypton is deteriorating and the science council believe him they believe him this is different than the traditional story of, oh, I thought I thought nobody believed Jor-El. <laughs> I thought the Science Council didn't believe him. Well, in this, the way this story is going, it, it, it would appear that, no, indeed, the Science Council, in conversations with uh, Jor-El, they actually believe Jor-El. And they go out of their way to, uh, you know, they want to find out from Jor-El, well, how can we stop it? And Jor-El basically tells him, we can't. It's 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 destabilizing. We can't stop it, but what we can do is sort of delay it. We can stabilize it so it doesn't worse, worsen by the use of energy, installing energy emitters at the very at the different poles of Krypton and at different places. And but this the energy required is so great that all of the people of Krypton are going to have to embrace austerity. In other words, it's going to affect the economy. So there's obviously some worldwide politics involved here that. This is absolutely catastrophic, but they can potentially do it, but it's going to require great sacrifice from the people of Krypton. And the problem is the people of Krypton are already involved in civil protest and unrest. And so much so that General Zod 
is is unlike his predecessor, General Zod, who's head of the military. General Zod is relentless and absolutely heartless in 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 taking down all the protesters. It used to be protesters that in the civil unrest that were protesting various aspects of the Kryptonian economy. They would they would just get off with a warning. Well, unfortunately, with Zod, Zod's idea is to hammer them, and he's he's filled the jails to overwhelming capacity because he's absolutely relentless. He thinks an iron hand is going to help. And in conjunction with that, we, when, when Zod finds out that Jorel is head of the science council, because the head of the science council is so overwhelmed uh, with the responsibility and, and he kind of wants to retire. He steps down and the other council members vote for Jorel to be head of the science council. So now we have a situation where Jorel, Jorel knows what needs to be done in order to, save Krypton with these energy emitters, but he also knows it's going to require a great sacrifice for the, from the people of Krypton. And he, and then at the end, he's faced with General Zod that has a plan. And Zod, you can see the growing conflict that's going to be arising between Zod and Jor-El. And traditionally, what Robert Venditti's writer here has done a very good job of, he's a, he establishes just how close Jor-El, the L family, is to the Zod family. And he also establishes how close the Z family is with the All family, and uh, and Alura Z is Kara's mother, and Kara is of course she's you know she's obviously she's a young woman here. She's being taught by her teacher All, and she's and she's inclined to be very interested in history, even though her father uh, Zorel. Jorel's brother wants her to go into the sciences. And so we're starting to see some conflicts in, in, in what Kara herself wants to do. And it's it's really interesting. I like how they're building up the mythology and, and, and the different family dynamics, and particularly how Ravenditti is fostering this dissension. And you can see the origins of the dissension between Zod and and um, Jorel. Because remember, it's absolutely crucial. Jarrell's responsibility is immense. That what is on his shoulders is literally the sanctity and safety of the entire planet. Unfortunately, this is going to require the people to cooperate and know how serious it is. And how do you do that when you got a military zealot like like Zod, who's going to who deal with every single uh, defiance with an iron hand? Maybe it can work. Maybe it doesn't. The reality is, though, we know how this story ends, right? <laughs> I mean, this is like watching Titanic. We know that this doesn't have a happy ending. And so uh, it's going to be interesting to see when the shoe drops and how Robert Venditti uh, crafts this narrative moving toward the inevitable destruction of Krypton. But I actually enjoyed this. I thought the art, I'm, I'm actually, I'm... I've actually bought into the uh, Von Oming art here. I actually like it. I've gotten, I got him accustomed to it. I like how Zod, he's really good at drawing. Like the colors here just pop off the page. There's a great, there's a great page sequence where Zod is almost standing on a throne and he's the head of the military and he's, he's like the judge, jury and, uh, and head of the tribunal. Remember last issue, Zod took it upon himself to push uh, for Kruel to be sentenced to the Phantom Zone. I mean, you. I, I really, uh, I really like how this is done here, and you're getting a sense of the history and the mythology of Krypton. And I think this is this is already I find uh, as interesting as the world of Krypton. I remember that series that I read back in the '80s. Um, but in any event, I enjoyed this. And but the question is going to be how many readers are going to like the fact that the Science Council agrees with Jor-El that Krypton is going to be destroyed. 
or does does the science council at one point change their mind and think that the krypton is isn't going to be destroyed it, it, it is this all misdirection i'm really curious to see how robert vetti is doing this and again i want to say again that uh with the with the with crypto the the dog at the end of this in almost like he's a little bit melancholy, Jorel goes and he buys a pet and he donates a million dollars, whatever the million dollar equivalent is, to this shelter, and and he takes the dog and the dog already has the name Crypto and I just think that's wrong. I think that I think I think Kalal should have been should be born and then named the dog Crypto, but that's minor, you know, minor little nitpick. But those those would be two changes I think to my understanding of the of the uh, history of Krypton. But uh, what do you think? Yeah, I I enjoyed it. Uh, one thing that always that I'll always uh, comes to mind when I'm reading these these different versions of of Krypton, because like you said, the, the previous world of Krypton that was written by John Byrne that has art by Mike Mignola, uh, which is it's it's fan, it's fantastic art, and it covers just it covers thousands of years in in Krypton's history and their their version of Clone Wars and a lot of ethics and morality of, of the people of Krypton. Um, this is how many versions there, there are, you know, of, of what Krypton was. And yet in almost all these versions, while Krypton is, you know, often, oftentimes this utopia advanced civilization, they couldn't save themselves. And that's the, the irony and the tragedy of Krypton, but it's never a situation where the people are, are, even for being a utopia where the, the people come across as like good, you know, generally good people, you know, they always, citizenry of Krypton always comes across as self-absorbed or entitled or spoiled, you know, and I, I, I understand that it's a, it's the writer um, creating drama and tension and whatnot based on the fact that, yeah, they, they do have such an advanced civilization that, that they're able to do so many things they're used to a certain sort of, um, you know, lifestyle. And in this particular issue specifically, you know, Ben Diddy's talking about, yeah, we're going to have to institute austerity, right? People are going to, are going to have, they're, they're, they're not going to have the, the amenities that they're used to having. And that could lead to revolt. That can lead to a lot of other things. So I, I don't know how you do it. I don't know if if you should do it. Maybe it's just built into the story that it's the Kryptonians are always going to be a little bit spoiled. You know, they're a little bit spoiled brats, uh, and and it it sort of takes the edge off when you think. Well, and, and other writers have used it to as a reason that Krypton's been destroyed. I'm specifically thinking of Brian Michael Bendis, how there was some resentment for Krypton among the the, the council, the circle, uh, and and you know, Rogalzar said that you know kryptonians were were takers basically and they were um robbing resources from other planets because you know to have a, a technological utopia the way krypton does it would require tremendous amounts of resources so uh, you know all that sort of sort of built in and it, it does make for interesting thought i don't know that you could ever go like hey let's let's create a krypton that's like a norman rockwell painting and and then have it be destroyed you know, yeah. would that would that still work? So, uh, as far as the the council agreeing with him, I mean, they agree they agree with him that the the planet is in trouble. They they can't argue with the the facts when he shows them, hey, you know, the core is decaying, uh, and they agree to you know uh, 
to help create these or, or uh, you know, approval for these two machines at the pole to kind of stabilize, basically phase shift the core so that it it doesn't, it's sort of out of time, sort of out of phase, and it doesn't continue to decay. I wonder if they'll agree, though, when Jorel says, hey, it didn't work, or the machines are, are sabotaged or whatever, or austerity doesn't work and they don't have enough energy to power the machines. And, and Jordan says, okay, we need to evacuate. At that point, that's where the disagreement comes in. Well, we're not going to abandon our planet. You're overreacting. It's not going to explode. We have more time, whatever. And it does uh, explode. So we'll, we'll see uh, how that all plays out. As far as the naming crypto, I've seen before. I mean, I think when he showed up the first time, he just showed up as a survivor of Krypton um, and, and, Superman didn't necessarily name him, so it didn't it didn't bug me uh, too much. But yeah, I could see why some people might you know if you're uh, if you're more tra traditional, then it might it might bother you. Uh, as far as the Avon Omi art, yeah, I agree, it's it's working. Uh, I'm really this is probably the other than powers, probably the the most I've enjoyed his art on a uh, on a particular work. So, and again, going back to that Mike Mignola, John Byrne, World of Krypton, you know, Mignola is a, a a very stylized uh, has a very stylized art style also so it's a little bit of a tradition for these world of krypton titles to have uh, somewhat of a stylized uh, art so yeah it's working for me yeah uh, one thing and i think it's because the world our world right now is going through climate change and we you know we of course our world isn't facing the extinction level possibilities as krypton but you know i have to admit that i can relate more to the people of krypton now in the in 2022 than I did when I when I read World of Krypton back in the early 1980s, you know, with because uh, this very clearly is a, a comment on climate on climate climate change and on our world. There's a lot of people that say, ah, oh, climate change is overblown, and you got to wonder on Krypton here. I mean, you got I mean, even in our world, you got scientists all saying climate change is real, and a whole bunch of politicians and ordinary citizens saying, no, it's not. Uh, it, yeah. you, you know, just so. I think already Robert Venditti is maybe making a statement because Krypton is a tragic story. It's a, it's a story of of the hubris of a technologically advanced civilization that ignored their own science. Perhaps at some point, maybe that's what they do. They ignored the science, or Jarrell will say, "Look, I was wrong. I, we can't. The energy emitters won't work. Austerity won't work. It's too late. We 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 waited too long. You know, you were too little. We're too late." And of course, what what are we get? What are we being told in our real world about climate change? We gotta act quick. We gotta act before twenty forty five or twenty. You know, so it's a lot of these things are echoed in this comic book, and it you know I, I think I think I, I you know I think deservedly so. I mean, uh, and I think that's what I, I would imagine Vendetti is probably very clearly that underscores some of his uh, some of the uh, the dialogue and the and the, and the story itself here. Yep, I agree. Uh, all right, let's move on. We have Suicide Squad number 12. This is from uh, Robbie Thompson. He's joined on the writing duties for this issue by Dennis Hopeless. Edward Panseca and Julio Ferreira handle some of the art duties. The other pages are handled by Dexter Soy. And then Marcelo Maiello and Matt Herms do the colors with Wes Abbott on letters. So last time we left the Suicide Squad, they were uh, battling on Earth-8 against the lightning strikes, which is clearly a take on the Thunderbolts from Marvel. These are villains turned heroes, supposedly. And it's all tongue-in-cheek with the, um, the ambush bug making plenty of comments and, and whatnot. But this is all 
the manipulations of Amanda Waller. She's doing her whole puppet master thing uh, in her attempts to take over Earth 3. Uh, one of the things I'll say, you know, as much as I despise Amanda Waller, I'll give a lot of credit to Robbie Thompson for for leaning into her villainy. Like, it's no longer, you know, behind the scenes. Like, she's just out and out a villain here. You know, she's she's killing people. She's like Doctor Doom. You know, she's maniacal. She's manipulative. She wants power for apparently just for power's sake. Um, and so. Yeah, what's going to happen in the War for Earth three? I guess we'll have to wait and see. I'm I'm certainly hoping, just from a you know personal point of view, that she gets her comeuppance and is off the stage for an extended period of time. But we'll have to see. In terms of what actually happens in this issue, uh, it feels like a lot of setup. It feels like a lot of setup for that that War for Earth three. But I don't know. Maybe Rocky feels uh, differently. I mean, it's it's not that things don't happen. But I, it's more about the things that happen are, are putting all the players in the place that Robbie Thompson and the rest of the creators involved with War for Earth 3 need them to be in order to kick that story off. So we, we do see Rick Flagg's version of the, the squad, you know, attempt to stop Amanda Waller and, and fail. You know, we do see the team that's on Earth 8. I mean, I guess technically they beat the lightning strikes because they run them off, but they're not exactly in great shape and they end up sort of stranded there. Um, major disaster continues to be a total prick, which, I, you know, that's in keeping with his character, but it's not really, he's not really, to me, that interesting of a character because he they lean so far over to, you know, one dimension with him that there's nothing there. He's not interesting. Um so yeah, it, there's absolutely no resolution or, or answers to anything in this issue, um, and everything's to be continued in the pages uh, of War for Earth three. Uh, as far as the art goes, it's it's pretty solid. I do feel like the Dexter Soy art here isn't as good as I'm used to seeing from him, um, and, and maybe that's why I felt like more than ever the art didn't match up. Like a lot of times, I don't mind that it's two different artists. And the art styles are close enough, but this this felt very very different. Like it's almost like Dexter Soy's style is is changing, and it's moving further away from what Panseca does. And it, you can especially see it in the way that they each draw Amanda Waller's hair. Like yeah, it is yeah. a completely different hairstyle. Yeah. Like it's like they're not even trying to do the same kind of hairstyle. <laughs> I don't know. It just, it bugged me. Um, yeah, no, I, I, so, I agree. E even the face yeah. itself was, you could tell differences there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Dexter Soy's version, she, she's like softer, more feminine. Um, so I like the Panseca version because she's coming across as kind of more malevolent and that's certainly the way she's acting. So it, it, for me, that suits the story, uh, story more. So I, I won't go so far as to say I didn't like the issue. Um, but I mean, it is Amanda, heavily Amanda Waller focused and her her villainy, as I said, is, is out in the open. So that's not something that I enjoy, but I'm hoping that like I'm trying to look on the bright side. OK, if she's really out like her villainy is out there now, like I don't possibly see how she can spin this around at the end of War for Earth 3 and say, oh, see, I did have a legitimate reason to do this. I wasn't the bad guy. You guys just weren't aware. Like, no, man, she is 
a bad person. She is a bad guy. She's not a hero. She's not an anti-hero. She's not the wall, you know, making the tough decisions to do what needs to be done. She is a villain. So yeah. lock her up and throw away the key, I say. Uh, anyway, what do you think, Rocky? Well, here's where uh, we can't forget Suicide Squad Future State. Remember that this is this ends with Amanda Waller essentially taking Match, Black Siren, and Talon with her to Earth Three, which is exactly how the Future State Suicide Squad started, and it ended with Connor are essentially match becoming the Superman of Earth 3. So where my confusion lies is does the future state does the suicide squad story in future state which which had uh match although he was Connor Kent at that time and Black Siren and Talon and I mean and different characters and they defeated the crime syndicate in the in the future state story isn't that what War for Earth 3 is? So is War for Earth 3 actually just a different version of what future state suicide squad was only we're going to see how it gets to that point you know what i mean i'm not really sure and 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 the other thing is is in the future state suicide squad amanda waller that ended with her kind of being happy that she had that she got a superman for earth three and that was connor kent although now it's revealed that it's not really connor kent it was it's actually match so i'm i'm really kind of confused now so, and we talked about this before, how the future state, how the future state stories, none of them are really lining up here. And yet there are some connective tissues, but I'm not really sure what the hell it is here. Because I almost, as much as I enjoyed Suicide Squad, Future State, I, I, I almost wish it didn't happen because I'm enjoying this Suicide Squad story. And, and, and I kind of want, Amanda Waller does seem to come across like a villain here. Uh, but, but, you know, even here she, she flip-flops. I mean, she just, she's always flip-flopping Amanda Waller. Like now, I mean, for, for issue after issue, she was, she could have killed Rodriguez at any time. She, she claims that she, she, she knew certain things. Well, she clearly didn't. Otherwise she, she would have killed Rodriguez earlier. She seems to be, she tells uh, Rick Flagg she was, she's 12 steps ahead of him. But I think she was just talking out of her ass because she really wasn't, uh, I mean, I, I, I don't really know. She, she is, so she manages to somehow, e even though the Suicide Squad ultimately defeat Amanda, like they defeat Amanda Waller's forces, Connor, uh, Match, and uh, Black Siren, along with the Talon, they defeat and end up kill Major Force, who was definitely working for Amanda Waller. Amanda Waller was very disappointed that Major Force was killed because he was going to be one of her major players to take to Earth 3. And of course, Black Siren kills Major Force, and then then Amanda Waller tries to kill Black Siren, and then gets upset that Black that 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 the explo exploding head thing is not working because that's been disconnected, and then she ends up taking Black Siren with her anyway, with Match and Talon to Earth Three, and so it's almost as if I'm not even I'm not entirely clear that Amanda Waller's she's kind of making this crap up as she goes too. I think to a certain extent. So I'm kind of a little bit confused as to what the end game here, because now she's going to end up on Earth three, and we know that the crime syndicate is—I mean, Ultraman on Earth three—we know from earlier issues—is pissed off. He wants to—he wants to kill Amanda Waller. He wants to take out the Suicide Squad. We know from Suicide Squad Future State that the that the crime syndicate gets handily defeated by the Suicide Squad. But is that even going to happen now? Is—is is that future? Un, is that 
in a state of flux. So, plus, if if Amanda Waller doesn't have plans, if she wants her own planet, Earth 3, why does she want her own planet? Like, I don't, you know, I can't imagine that the crime syndicate is going to lose. Who the, is there anybody who loves the DC Universe who wants the crime syndicate not to be the foremost powerhouse of Earth 3? I want the crime syndicate to be in charge of Earth 3. I don't want a glorified suicide squad led by Amanda Waller to rule Earth 3. I hope that's not the outcome. Maybe that's just me. But in any event, I'm really fascinated by the story. But I'm I'm really, it's not clear to me where Robbie Thompson and, uh, and, and Dennis Hopeless joined him on this issue. But I will say this, this issue continued to entertain me. I, but I got a lot of question marks. And we, like you said, this is all set up. Uh, I'm I'm relieved that Dennis Hopeless and Robbie Thompson. I couldn't tell this issue that Robbie Thompson had somebody help him on the script. Uh, Dennis Hopeless. I've heard mixed things about Dennis Hopeless from his writing at Marvel. So, you know, I've, you know, through the grapevine. You know, I've just on the internet, a lot of people aren't big fans of Dennis Hopeless's Marvel work. I, I don't mind his Marvel work. His, his, his Spider Woman was okay and everything. And but this actually makes me feel a little bit better. I'm hoping that. You know, if, if if the future writing, if War of Earth Three is like this, this issue is here. I think it. I think it can be entertaining. I'm, and and but Amanda Waller, she's all over the place here. Uh, she's good and she's bad, and I'm. I really don't like the fact that she feels too often. She feels like, well, writers just you know, just when they just when Amanda Waller crosses the line, they pull her back and she does something quasi heroic. And then, then they make her an asshole again, and then they pull her back, and and it's, she's like a, like she's like a ping pong, a psychological ping pong ball, and it's it's a little bit frustrating to me, and and she always seems to have all this power, and how she's not a metahuman, I mean she, she's got no governmental authority, and you know I I don't, it, it's the oddest eclectic sort of array of like, for for somebody who's not a metahuman, I don't know where in the hell she gets all this influence, but uh, other than you know, I hate to say it, but a little bit of forced writing there. And I, I wish there was a little bit more in the background as to how Amanda Waller has all this. But in any event, I'm rambling on. I like this, but I'm really curious. I hope they pull a lot of these, all these desperate plot threads together for the War of Earth 3. Yeah, I, I, as far as her wanting to take over Earth 3, that's why I mentioned Doctor Doom. It's, it's a very Doctor Doom-like, or Doctor Octopus, right? She's a megalomaniac. Yeah. Wants to have Earth 3 to have Earth 3. Like, yeah, doesn't make any sense. All right, moving on. Uh, Monkey Prince, number one, which Rocky mentioned earlier. Uh, we have, it, it's interesting. Uh, it says, well, I guess Jean Luen Yang as writer, Bernard Chang as artist, Sebastian Chang on colors, and Janice Chang on letters. So I, it, it doesn't have a, um, well, yeah, that's a creative team, and then they, they don't really talk about who the, the cover artists are. Uh, it just says Chang and Cheng, so I suppose the same two, Bernard Chang and, and Sebastian Chang. Um, but we first saw this character in the DC Asian Heroes Spotlight, um, and now we're getting his, his origin, which, uh, I don't know, I felt like I didn't have a lot of context for this. Even though you know I'd read the Monkey Prince before, so I don't know if it landed for me. So I was glad to hear that you you uh, put in some extra time, Rocky. I'm curious your I did. thoughts. 
<laughs> uh, well, I had to uh, I had to do a little bit of a deep dive into this, uh, but I actually agree with your initial sentiment. I, I agree that there is. I, I think this needed a little bit more, a little bit more substance to it, and a little bit more background because I know nothing about the Monkey Prince. I had no idea this was an established character, and so I have no idea. I had no idea, and I'm I'm baffled by this. Uh, but but there's enough here for me to get my feet sort of to get to get into what's going on. But I I don't know if I find it all that interesting that I would come back for a second issue. And I say that with great respect. I think the art here is okay. It's it's decent enough. But the the story here is a little bit. Uh, the, the story has some interesting moments. What it involves a young young boy by the name of uh, Marcus. Uh, Marcus and his parents are Laura and Winston Shugelshen. And Marcus's parents are actually scientists that are kind of like scientists for hire. And they work for uh, a various number of uh, villains in Gotham City. Uh, through the course of their careers, Marcus's parents have lived in, they've lived in Gotham City, they've lived in Bloodhaven, they've lived in Keystone City. They live, they've lived in all these places where all these superheroes are, and they work for supervillains. They've worked for Captain Cold before. They've worked for the Penguin. They've worked for uh, the, the the Riddler, and and they've always been. Uh, and 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 the opening scene involves, uh, uh, you know, Marcus going to going to bed, uh, and then he, he's woken up in the middle of the night, and there's puddles on the ground, and he he walks in on on Batman, intimidating and beating up his dad, in, interrogating his dad, and Batman is is taken aback by this and saying, "Oh my God, you you." You, you have a child here and and of course Batman sort of takes off and and Batman leaves and this and tells his tells his parents you know like you know tell your employer this isn't over and presumably the employer that they worked for is the penguin or or, or the riddler one of them it's not important what's more important is that this this traumatized young Marcus so that Marcus had somewhat uh, he became traumatized against and he's fearful of Batman and following this incident where Batman sort of in aggressively intimidates uh, his parents, uh, Laura and Winston Shugelshin, <laughs> they, he, 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 they leave Gotham City and they go to Bloodhaven, then they move to Keystone, and eventually they move back to Gotham City where Marcus is a young teenager attending high school, but he still has this trauma. And 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 whether he's in Bloodhaven, he'll look at the black curtains and he'll think of Batman's cape. And whether he whether and he's, he might be somewhere else, he'll be in Keystone City and he'll see birds in the sky and he'll think of bats. And it, it freezes him and it traumatizes him. And what happens when he ends up in back as a teenager in Gotham City? He he gets bullied, of course, a little bit of little little tropey. You know, he's he's bullied by a guy named Rizzolino, the Riz they call the bully, and they throw him they throw Marcus in the pool. And Marcus, you know, again, he's he's traumatized and he's frozen. And his mother is really attractive. And the the janitor at this school is a guy by the name of a Mr. Zoo. And it's this Mr. Zoo who who actually ends up being uh, ends up being the very person that is going to bestow upon him some some of his powers as the Monkey Prince. And this Mr. Zoo, this this Mr. this janitor, this Mr. Zoo, he's he claims he's got the cure to Marcus's uh, wheezing and fear of drowning. And and what it is is he needs he needs Marcus to overcome his fear, it is ultimately revealed, so that he can embrace being the monkey prince. Meanwhile, it's really odd. There's scenes in here where Mr. Zoo expresses an attraction toward Marcus's mother. 
you know, and he talks about, oh, check out that wide, wide hip beauty coming toward us. Almost makes me regret my vow of celibacy. He's talking about Marcus's mother. And I think it's intended to be funny, but maybe it was just, it came across as a little creepy to me. And then, and then he literally is a pig. I mean, this Marcus, Mr. This Mr. Zoo is later revealed is actually a pig. He's this pig character, which again, apparently is a popular pig character in Monkey Prince lore, but just, I don't know, it just seemed a little bit off to me. Meanwhile, his parents, Laura and Winston, uh, are working for the Penguin, and they're trying to create for Penguin this 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 golden, uh, they're trying to create for the Penguin this uh, golden demon to imbue this golden demon into uh, th this other guy, Mr. Lester, in order to turn him into pure gold. Something goes wrong, and... Uh, they piss off the penguin and this is all going on behind the scenes. Meanwhile, Marcus is all, he's all, he, you know, he, he's trying to get his act together and he's trying to overcome his fears. And ultimately he manages, uh, he does ultimately manage to do that. Uh, but not before, uh, when he's in class, when he's at, in class, uh, the love interest of the story, the, the potential love interest for Marcus is this girl named Kea. She notices suddenly he sprouts a monkey tail. He runs off, ends up near the pool. He gets beat up by Rizzy. He's, he's thrown in the pool. And then he suddenly turns into the monkey prince. And then he ends up hallucinating and talking to Mr. Zoo, who is really this person called Shifu Pigsy. And this guy, this Mr. Zoo is actually this fat looking pig character. I mean, I'm not, I don't know how else to describe it. He looks like a fat human pig hybrid. Again, not an attractive character. None of these characters are attractive. Monkey Prince is not an attractive character. And and again, uh, so he he, ends, he becomes the Monkey Prince and then he wants to get revenge on the guy who's bullying him. He attacks the bully and it ends up that Damian Wayne is undercover at the same school. Damian Wayne. Damian Wayne contacts Batman and then Batman and Damian basically try to rescue this bully who's being beat up by the Monkey Prince and Batman throws his batarang at the Monkey Prince and for some reason, the monkey prince's head falls off. <laughs> and again, this is really weird stuff. So how, how do I, uh, so how do I digest all this? Well, I'm, I don't, I have no idea how he's become the monkey prince. I have no idea. Obviously, he must be adopted. His real parents are, are not, clearly Laura and Winston Shen are not his real parents. Uh, his, 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 his step parents, or his, I guess maybe they're his foster parents. They're actually, they work for bad guys. They work for God, for the rogues gallery of Batman. That's probably why they're on. That's probably why they're on Batman and Damian Wayne's radar. And so that's why they're Damian Wayne is probably at the school spying on, on, on Marcus. Cause they know Marcus's parents are, are, are working for various villains. Uh, but again, how this is connects to a larger mythology of the monkey prince. I really don't, not a lot was revealed here. But again, this is a brand new mythology to me. Uh, I don't know if, um, you know, the next the next issue promises Monkey Prince versus Batman versus Monkey Prince's head. I mean, this is really, really goofy stuff. Um, I'm actually thinking that maybe this is for a younger audience other than myself, because this seems really, really odd to me. And I, I, I don't know. It's just, I don't know. Uh, did, did you skim read it at least, or did you, did you, what, what's your, no, I read it. This? I, I, I read it. Yeah. I just, and it, it wasn't that I was lost or I thought structurally it didn't work. You know, I feel like I understood everything on the surface, but 
and and again, I don't begrudge this existing. I'm glad that it exists, but I just don't have any context. I I, I know absolutely nothing about Chinese folklore or mythology or 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 anything. You know, like you were saying, this monkey prince is a is a, a known character in Chinese lore. The Shifu Pigsy, I I got the impression was some kind of you know mythical character in in chinese lore i i don't i'm not bringing anything to it so the only thing that i'm getting out of it is on the surface of, of whatever we're being told uh in the story which again it's it's fine i just i know what a talented writer Jean luen yang is i know what a talented artist bernard bernard chang is so i know there's things that i'm missing because i i just don't have the I just don't have the language to understand it. You know, I don't have the knowledge base. But that being said, for any uh, Asian Americans, specifically Chinese uh, 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 Americans, I, I imagine this this could be a gateway for them, you know, and I, I think it's great that it exists. But I'm not bringing it since I'm not bringing anything to it. I only get what's on the surface and surface wise. It didn't really feel like it was. Uh, it was anything new or, or refreshing, you know? Okay. So it's, it's kind of a fish out of the water story. You know, here's a kid who doesn't really fit in at school. He's kind of a nerd. Uh, he's bullied and he gets superpowers. And what does he do? You know, his superpowers allow him to, you know, be wise cracking and, you know, does it sound familiar at all? You know, amazing Spider-Man, anybody? Um, so yeah, it didn't really feel like it was treading on any any new ground on the surface, right? But I know there's, like I said, a lot more below the surface. Obviously, his origins and you know what we might discover could be interesting. Could it could diverge from other stories we've had of, of this type. Um, so we'll we'll wait and see. Like I always say, you got to give a, a a series at least two or three issues. So you know, I'm in for the next issue or two, and we'll see. Um, and then you know, I say that, but. I'm still reading Harley Quinn. And I said I was going to stop that, and I haven't. So, yeah, I mean, it was a solid enough story. Like I said, I'm glad it exists. I hope it brings in some some new readers uh, of Asian descent who can and do have more uh, more invested in this in terms of, hey, these are the bedtime stories my uh, parents used to tell me or my grandparents or, or whatever. Or maybe it will uh, spur some of them to go and learn more about their um, – the mythology of, you know, from their heritage and whatnot. So yeah, I'm glad it exists. It's just for me as, you know, a uh, Hispanic guy, I, I, I have no context. I have no frame of reference. So, uh, all right, let's move on. Um, Arkham city, the order of the world chapter five. I think this is chapter five. Yeah. Chapter five of six is written by Dan waters. Danny is the artist. Dave Stewart does the colors. I did bit of car on letters. Um, this one was a little bit of a struggle for me. I've talked before uh, about not liking the, the uh, art style. Um, and again, it just goes to the, it, it's this more sketchy, rough style. It's, it's just personally not what I enjoy. That being said, previous issues of this, I felt like, even though I didn't care for the art style, I felt like the storytelling was solid and I could understand what was going on. In this one, and maybe it's because we find out that the the big bad here, or, or the, the the ghost of Jeremiah Arkham, who supposedly has been recruiting all these villains or causing all this mayhem, is actually somebody called Doctor No Face, who 
Dan Waters is pulling way back. As far as I know, Dr. No-Face is a, a Batman villain from the Golden Age, and he hasn't shown up since then. Uh, so, I mean, kudos to him for pulling out something from way back when. Uh, but just based on the character design that Danny gives this character, it, I just I had a hard time. It was a chore to read this uh, because of the art, uh, as opposed to any of the dialogue or the scripting or anything like that. I thought that has been solid throughout. Uh, the, where I've struggled with this is with is with the art. So uh, there's even a scene between um, of a fight between Azrael and Doctor Phosphorus where Azrael's punching Doctor Phosphorus, and I I found it strange that they didn't even decide to put in any sound effects, but it looks so strange when you see the fist and suppose, I guess supposedly he's connected and, you know, Dr. Phosphorus's face is turned one way or the other, but it doesn't even really look, it, it, it looked, you know how you see really bad B movies where, <laughs> you know, one guy punches the other and it's a phantom punch. Yeah, that's that's the page right there. And yeah. see, it doesn't even look like those punches are are connecting. It looks like there's space between. And I don't know if sound effects would have helped. I I, I don't know. I it just it pulled me right out of the story. I'm like, it doesn't even look like he's punching him. It just looks like, okay, I'm gonna put my fist in front of you. Now take the picture, and it'll look like I'm, you know, forced perspective. It'll look like I'm punching you. Yeah. It doesn't even actually look like they're. Although in in his in in the defense though of the of the artist, uh, I think that that's actually confirmed by the narrative because Doctor Phosphorus even says that he's the radiation is eating away at his humanity and that makes it rather hard to feel the punches. So it might be that you know that the punches aren't really connecting, which is consistent yeah. with the look of the visuals. So maybe that's yeah, I just I thought it yeah I thought it was really really strange. Um, so. Yeah, although the the story has been mildly interesting, uh, the art has been a struggle for me throughout. And then at the very end, just to add like insult to injury, we find out that the person this Doctor No Face has been sort of working for to go and recruit all these villains who are just sort of out there in, in Gotham, scattered in the Gotham underground and, and nooks and crannies of Gotham, hidden away uh, since a day. It's Professor Pig. And if there's any bad villain I dislike uh, more than Professor Pig, I'm not aware of it. Like I, I think Professor Pig <laughs> is a stupid character. Uh, he, he doesn't need to exist. Anybody, he's a, he's a plot device, right? You can make Professor Pig's crazy, so you can make him do whatever you you want to do. And he's deranged, and it leans into the, this theme of body horror that's shown up in comics in the last. 10 years or whatever, uh, you know, like when I found, I'm like, I wasn't reading Batman for an extended period of time. And then when I came back to Batman and somebody was talking about professor pig and I, I did a little research and I was like, well, this character, I, I don't, this doesn't make any sense. I, and then I'm, somebody said, well, Oh, he's a Grant Morrison creation. I thought, Oh, that, well, that makes perfect sense. You just make him do whatever you want to do. There's nothing interesting about him. There's no subtlety. There's no, uh, context. There's no layers. He's just some crazy guy in a pig mask who who cuts people up for, in my mind, gratuitous body horror. I, it, the only way you could have made this book worse and or make me want to read it less in my mind was to put Professor Pig in it, and that's what they did. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it, it was it was a supreme disappointment for me. Like, 
at various times because of the art, I, I haven't really been enjoying this, but I've been sticking with it because I'm curious. I think Dan Waters is a very talented writer. Um, but yeah, already this issue felt like a turn for the worse to me. Um, because I said, as I said, the art felt like a step back. Um, but then they threw Professor Pig in, in at the end and I was, just, uh, yeah, I didn't like it. So what do you think, Rocky? Uh, well, I, I was, uh, this is one that I had to do a little bit more of a deep dive into to really appreciate it. I have a, I have a slightly more uh, optimistic and uh, I, I think I enjoyed it a more than you did. In my view, I don't, I didn't, I actually don't care. It could have been, it was professor pig at the end. Uh, but I, I, it could be anybody that's, I don't think that's really important uh, in, in my, to my enjoyment of the narrative. What I think was, what is interesting here is how it, this story itself from the very beginning and it really is hammered home in this issue is it, it juxtaposes two relationships uh the the concept of the wounded healer uh and and, and that's alluded to in here dr joy is the wounded healer she herself has got prop her own pain in her life and it's the idea that you know uh, is it a, you know it's the whole cliche idea of if, uh, if, if you suffer from mental illness when you were young, you're going to probably be a psychologist when you're older because, you, you know, you know, if you the more pain you endure, the more easier it is for you to help others who have similar pains. And so like attracts like the idea of a wounded healer. Dr. Joy's relationship with the ten eyed with the ten eyed man is interesting because in many ways she hit out the ten eyed man in her own apartment. She's the wounded healer. Dr. Joy, in many ways bonded and almost became codependent with the ten-eyed man in much the same way as 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 Dr. No Face became codependent and fostered codependency with Professor Pig. One of the one of the weaknesses, uh in fact the, the mental illness or the mental problem that uh Dr. No Face has is that he uh, she lets others make decisions for her and it 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 fosters codependency and and Dr. No Face attaches to people psychologically and in this case she attached herself to doctor or to professor pig who of course manipulated her and utilized that and of course in doing so dr no face uh dr no face assumed the the image of amadeus arkham and appeared to be the ghost of amadeus arkham uh attracting all these other patients these inmates of arkham to the new arkham and of course we're thinking it's we're, we're thinking the new arkham are they talking about arkham tower they're not that was all misdirection the new tower was pig's tower was you know you know pig's tower you know professor pig's tower and so i thought it was interesting i think it's i think it's clear at least in my mind that writer dan waters is trying to maybe draw some analogies there that you know is there that much of a difference between doc what dr joy is doing and trying to get into the head of her patients and trying to help them as opposed to what dr no face is doing in almost fixating and you know it's it's that fine line between you know trying to get into somebody's head to help them versus becoming lost in their world and losing control of, of, of your ability to heal. At what point does the healer become the victim or, or possessed of the very thing you're trying to heal? As So I think it's interesting there. And again, I, I like the metaphor of it, uh, it, but it doesn't quite nail the land. It doesn't quite hammer home quite the way it would. I thought it was a little confusing. Uh, and particularly at the beginning where it shows there's so much misdirection about Dr. Face, you know, first Dr. Face as, um, as the ghost of Amadeus Arkham approaches double X and it says what double X's desire is and, and how Dr. No Face attracts double X uh, by 
by telling, you know, inviting him to come to a better Arkham, uh, Dr. No-Face approaches Ratcatcher and promises a maze that he can run to his heart's content. She approaches the March Hare, promises to take uh, the March Hare to the Mad Hatter. And so, and the moment that she did that, the March Hare stops screaming. And so all this manipulation is going on and it's really the Dr. No-Face doing this, but at the behest and codependent control of Professor Pig. And I find that fascinating. And, and so just think of it this way. Professor Pig is like a glorified psychologist sort of manipulating Dr. No-Face. Well, to what extent isn't Dr. Joy kind of doing the same things, but but in a more benevolent way for Dr. for 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 the ten-eyed man who she's trying to help? Anyways, I just it's just questions I ponder as I read the narrative and and I get a little bit more out of it when I think of it that way. But I admit that, you know, I think, unfortunately, as much as I actually enjoyed the coloring, I like Dave Stewart on the colors. I, I like the red and the green. Dr. Phosphorus and that scene with the red of uh, of uh, the... Uh, uh, Azrael. What's that? Azrael. Azrael, yeah. I, I, thought a lot of, I thought a lot of the colors really worked. And this does have a creepy aspect to it. I mean, I, I think that Danny on the art does a really good job. But uh, I, I will admit that, you know, it did take me a couple of reads to maybe try to get what the main theme out of this was. But I, I want to give the writer here, uh, Dan Waters, some credit because he did put a lot of thought in this. And I had no idea this was a Golden Age uh, villain. I, I, I heard that from you and, and kudos to him for, uh, for doing that. I, instead of, instead of embracing his ego and creating a new villain, if he's, if he's trying to revitalize, bring, bring forth some golden age ones, I think that's a inspired idea. And this is an interesting villain. I, I do think there's a lot of potential for this Dr. No face moving forward. Yeah. I mean, very, very different take on it. Like from the images that I saw, it was just literally a, a character that was drawn without a like, look, almost like the question, you know, mm -hmm. but without the hat. Um, and, and it, it, they speak about it so matter of factly, like who it is, like Nocturne is like, Oh, Dr. No face. It's like, yeah. we're supposed to know who that is. And so yeah, I, I was like, is this, is this somebody that I'm supposed to know who it is? So that's what prompted me to go and do a search for it. I'm like Batman villain, Dr. No face. And that's where I, I discovered. So yeah, I mean, cool to bring back somebody like that, who, like I said, I, I he hasn't shown up in my 30 years of Batman reading. So, uh, or her, I, it might, it might even be a woman, this, this version. So. Uh, okay, up next, One Scar Star Squadron number three from writer Mark Russell, Steve Liebers, the artist, Dave Stewart on colors, Dave Sharp on letters. We haven't been a, a big fan of this series so far. This is issue three of six. It, we've, we, Rocky and I have both felt a little bit like picking on superheroes and, and like feeling a little desperate and, and sad. Uh, has that changed at all for you with this one, Rocky? Well, not not really. I mean, look, I the story here isn't terrible. It's just, I, it's just one of those stories where I just question the need for its existence. <laughs> like I, I just, I, and that maybe sounds like such a harsh thing for me to say, but it's this is just, uh, you know, uh, again, uh, do we really need to? I, I don't know. Look, the story just. I'm not a big fan of this. This is basically Red Tornado. He's down and out. He works for Heroes, uh, Heroes to I'm sorry, Heroes to Hire or Heroes for You, and uh, he works for this corporation, Heroes for You, where down and out superheroes go here to find work, and they they can do bar mitzvahs and birthday parties, and you can you can hire them to help you and be bodyguards and do bur and and to do events and whatever you want, and and of course the biggest loser of of this Heroes for You is Minuteman. 
and uh, and of course, Red Tornado is you know the profits are down. The the, the prop the corporation the the corporate officers the the and directors of the corporation of Heroes for You their projected earnings for their uh, fourth quarter are down, and they're really looking a way to increase profit, and. They're gonna. They want to call uh, Red Tornado in to talk with Red Tornado, and Red Tornado is fairly convinced he's going to be fired. Uh, Power Girl actually, cars. Uh, Power Girl uh, Karen Powers actually, or uh, actually feels a little bit uh, guilty because she feels she's she's responsible for what she anticipates will happen, namely that Red Tornado is going to be fired and that she'll be promoted. And um, there, there's a heartfelt moment at the beginning where. Um, where Minuteman says to Red Tornado, you know, he because Red Tornado actually finds manages to find Minuteman some work, and Minuteman is so is so happy. He says, you know, and he he tells Red Tornado, "What do you do when it's the lie that keeps you alive? Like I may not be a superhero anymore. Maybe I can't take the miracle pills that give me my my strength anymore. But as Minuteman, my whole life was defined by being Minuteman, and when that lie is the only thing that keeps me going, what happens?" When when all that is is a lie, everything I am is a lie. So there's some deeply heartfelt questions here, but they're also deeply depressing when you look when you what because we know what the answer is. Minuteman is a loser. I mean, I mean he needs therapy. He doesn't need more more work. He, I mean, Minuteman should be. I mean, he should he should visit Arkham Tower right now and have maybe Psycho Pirate make him happy, <laughs> because right now he's a depressing. He's a really depressed guy, and. Uh, you know, it's interesting that, you know, the big reveal at the end here is, you know, is Power Girl is thinking that uh, Red Tornado is going to get fired. But as it turns out, this is the big misdirection, this issue. The corporate powers that be, they're they're so happy that everybody at Heroes for You hates Red Tornado because Power Girl got everyone to write a hate letter to get Red Tornado fired so she could take it over and make it profitable. And but the corporate powers that be are happy that everybody hates Red Tornado because that way Red Tornado can fire him and they can hate him all they want because they hate him already. So it's not going to make a difference. So they can fire them all anyway and start new. So that's really it here. So again, and there's a moment between Red Tornado and his wife and talking about it and, and the machinations of the corporate corporate officers talking about it. I Again, this is very right in. This is right in writer Mark Russell's wheelhouse. He, this is what he he basically he's he writes all the time, sort of like the politi- political satire, the parody, while at the same time imbuing it with some real world. Every now and then he'll he'll give a zinger, like he'll give a. He's good for a one liner that makes you think. You know, uh, you know, you know. What do you do when when it's the lie of your life that's keeping you alive? Well, it's really profound, but it's it's smack dab in the middle of of a ridiculously depressing story that I don't know, like, like I'm not, I'm not collecting this because I, you know, we're reviewing it, but this is not something that, you know, is that I find, you know, maybe this will end on a high note. I mean, good Lord, I certainly hope so. Cause this has been just absolutely relentlessly depressing. And, you know, what's going to happen when red tornado shows up and he's got a fire power girl next issue. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not really sure. I'm not. I'm not excited for this. I'm not looking forward to the next issue. I don't care what happens because I don't think it has any consequence, and I don't want it to. When I think of the DC universe, we want hope and fun. <laughs> Do, is this really what we want? Is this like who asked for this? I'm going to say this again. Uh, we, I said this after we reviewed the first issue. Who asked for One Star Squadron? Is this really what the of all the titles we, we're drowning in Batman stories right now in the DC universe? 
and we're crying for more characters and we get one star squadron to do so we're getting too much batman and then a title like this that depresses the shit out of people like i just i don't get it i mean is this a terrible comic no but again i question of all the comics that you would come up with why this anyways i'm off my I'm, my rant is over and you can uh enlighten me with your perspective <laughs> no my my perspective is not much different than yours I, I mean here's here's the thing about it right like yeah it's it's not technically a bad comic um and mark russell has said some interesting things before but it's always been in the context of the dc universe or the things he's written he's written have been outright funny this is none of those things there's nothing you know i tried to find the humor in the first issue but it just it feels sad it feels exploitative uh you know and i understand it's a commentary on commercialism and corporate culture and taking advantage and those are certainly conversations that are worth having um but yeah i question if this is the right medium to have them in but i, I mean maybe mark russell doesn't have another outlet for that and maybe he's he needs to take these characters and make this uh you know make this story to, to comment on those things I do wish, and for the most part, I mean, this Minuteman guy is not a, a character that's been around uh, a lot. Red Tornado, obviously more uh, well-known. Power Girl, even more well-known. Maybe for the story he's telling, he had to choose these characters, but I don't want these I like Red Tornado. I, I, I like Power Girl. I don't want them to be in this story acting the way they're acting. But maybe that's the point, right? Maybe it's to make people uncomfortable and get them thinking about things, but I do sort of feel like the people that are going to pick this up and read it and and understand the things that Mark Russell is trying to explore and sort of agree with his political viewpoint are not the people that need to pick this up and think about the think about what he's trying to explore, right? Like mm -hmm. you're sort of already preaching to the audience that already understands the things he's trying to say. You know what I mean? Like I agree that uh, greed and corporate culture is bad you know like i agree that too many um i don't want to exactly compare superheroes to minorities but you know the characters in this book that like uh minuteman they are um they're sort of vulnerable people you know they don't have a lot of marketable skills you know so there's in this story they're sort of the analog for those um you know, in the real world, those minorities who might be underemployed or uh, undereducated th through circumstance, right? I mean, I think that's what he's trying to get at here. Um, so somebody like myself who would pick this up, I'm already, I'm already in that camp. I already agree with you, Mark Russell. So I'm not exactly, like you said, Rocky, I'm not exactly sure. Like, so what's the, what's the point of this? Because a lot of times when he's telling a story, and he's talking about these sort of political ideas and, and engendering conversations about uncomfortable subjects. At least it's tempered with humor. You know, this is not tempered with humor. This is just sad in, in yeah. so many ways. And yes, that's a, still a conversation worth having. But again, who who is reading this and going, oh, I never thought about that before. Maybe there are people out there. I, I, I don't know. I, 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 just I, I guess this. I don't happen to be one of them and the big joke here is who is the boss of heroes for you prior to red tornado it was not other than manhunter and i wonder if yeah. that's mark shaw leviathan yeah. used to work for heroes for you <laughs> i love it yeah I, 
that that definitely felt purposeful which yeah that was that was interesting so i i mean i want to like this more than i do um and maybe mark russell will you know pull the rug out from under us he did get a little bit of a twist in this issue we thought red tornado was going to be fired turns out no we're going in a completely different way with corporate culture which i don't know like you said it's just so depressing because i see you know based on my day job i see things in the real world uh corporate wise and certainly with the the way that i follow AT&T and Warner Brothers and now Discovery and their corporate decisions because I'm worried about the future of DC Comics. Well, I'm more worried about the the creative people that work at DC Comics. Um, you know, I see these depressing things in real life. So do I need to see, see them in my comic as well? I don't know. Um, but at, at the end of the day, I think I am glad that this exists, even if I might not necessarily be the, the target audience. Uh, I'm going to have to reserve judgment on this. You know, I think maybe I was a little bit too harsh in the beginning because I went into it expecting it to be funny. It's not. It's something other than that. So I'm I'm going to hold out hope that it's going to win me over in the end, but we'll we'll have to wait and see. Uh, okay, up next we have Detective Comics number 1051. And if it feels like we're talking about Detective Comics a lot, we are because it's coming out every week. Uh, written by Mariko Tamaki. We have Max Rayner on art this time. Luis Guerrero does colors, Ariana Mare on letters. Then we have the backup story that's written by Matthew Rosenberg that has Fernando Blanco on art, Jordi Belair on colors, and Rob Lee on letters. Uh, the main story, we had the big reveal last time, the cliffhanger, that Psycho Pirate um, was the one who was causing all the, the villains to apparently, um, I don't, I don't want to say use the word healed, but the, the villains of Arkham Tower were doing better, right? Like they were, they were being rehabilitated. They were their mental issues were seemingly resolved. So we get a a little bit of a flashback. We find out that um, is his name Roger. I should have looked it up. Uh, anyway, Doctor Ware apparently is known psycho pirate. They were children together. Yeah, Tobias uh, Ware. Doctor Tobias. Yeah, Tobias. No, no, a psycho pirate. His name is is it Roger? Roger Hayden. Hayden there. I want to say Langdon. I knew that wasn't yeah. right. Yeah. Roger Hayden. Yeah. So apparently uh, Dr. Ware, Tobias Ware and Roger Hayden were friends from like way back in the day, um, uh, you know, childhood friends. And so psycho pirate, I guess maybe Tamaki is trying to play into continuity a little bit. Uh, psycho pirate, maybe you could read into it that he's running away. Like he escaped dark side and he's running away. He's looking for a place to hide. He stresses that over and over with the, with uh, where he's like, I, I need to be hidden. Nobody can find me. So uh, where's like, well, I have this great plan. It's this great con. It's this long con. And so, yeah, he brings him into the tower. He does his uh, doc, uh, psycho pirate does his thing, makes all the villains supposedly seem happy. And all Dr. Ware's trying to do is just get that big, that, that big check, that check that's worth millions of dollars for the funding of Arkham tower. So he can, uh, you know, take the money and run. Basically, he says it'll be enough money that Psycho Pirate and Doctor Ware and um, this other woman—I'm not sure exactly who it is—his um, assistant, I think. Uh, She's—I think she works in the in the hospital as well. But anyway, the three of them will have enough money to disappear forever. But it's a bit of a house of cards because Doctor Ware has to get Doctor Chase Meridian to sign off. You know on her report that she's sending to Nakano, Mayor Nakano, in order for him to get the uh, to get the approval. So meanwhile, 
Psycho Pirate is he's stressed to his limits, you know, trying to make sure everybody stays happy. And we see him sort of lose control at one point, and there's a bit of a riot in the cafeteria, which ends with um, with Nightwing in um, a very precarious position because Anna Vulsion recognizes him. So how that's all going to play out, we'll have to wait and see. They basically, uh, when Psycho Pirate is awakened by Dr. Ware, Dr. Ware's like, what's going on? How come everybody's rioting? He goes to the office where Psycho Pirate's been pounding the energy drinks and taking all these pills to try to stay awake and keep control of all these uh, these crazies, basically. Uh, and Psycho Pirate puts them all to sleep. So that's sort of the cliffhanger that it, that it ends on. So, yeah, it's, it, it's very much a house of cards. Meanwhile, Dr. Ware, he's, he's over-promised and under-delivered to a lot of different people. And these are not the kind of people you want to disappoint various criminal gangs and uh and the penguin and whatnot about the the drug this the prescription drug that he's been selling because he's so greedy it wasn't enough for him to do the con and try to get the million dollar check or million the check for millions of dollars from gotham city no he was also selling this prescription drug numb um to the street gangs and to to the penguin um and now he hasn't delivered and they're they're after him as well so uh, yeah, the, definitely building to a head. Um, I am still, I don't want to say disappointed, but I, you know, if you remember, we saw, we had that first issue that started kind of in the middle of the story with the shit having hit the fan in Arkham Tower. I still feel like, I don't know if that was the right choice. You know, um, I get that Mariko Tamaki was trying to hook people cause it's a big investment to pick up the book weekly. Um, but we kind of know where this is heading, even if we don't know the, the ultimate conclusion, because we got that. And I sort of wish that we didn't know, you know, kind of the same um, same th way we, that we feel about Future State. You know, like Rocky was talking about Suicide Squad and Earth 3 earlier. So overall, I'm still enjoying this. I, I will say, that although the Max Rayner art is, is fantastic, it's not as detailed or as beautiful as Yvonne Reese. Um, so... But this is the first issue that hasn't been drawn by Yvonne Reese. And, you know, we were wondering how long he was going to be able to keep going, how, how much lead time he had. Um, but, yeah, I mean, overall, I, I think if it wasn't – if Max Rayner had been doing this entire series, I would have been like, oh, the art's great. Um, so it's just a, – it's a little bit of a, a different aesthetic. Uh, but the storytelling is fantastic. The colors are great. I, I'm really enjoying this story. And I remember when it got announced, I'm like, oh, we're going to – we're going to be doing an Arkham Tower story. This really, it's the the location of it is incidental, right? And and Rocky and I both complained before about there's no way in the in a real world that you would call this place Arkham Tower with all the negative connotations from Arkham Asylum over the years. Mm -hmm. But it that aspect hasn't been explored at all, and I'm actually okay with that. Let's just because in my mind I can call it whatever I want. It doesn't matter. It's not part of the story, or at least it hasn't been so far. So uh, anyway, what do you think about the main story, Rock? Uh, well, I like it, and I and I, and I think that the the revelation of Psycho Pirate as being the the person who's behind everything, I think that's perfect for this story. It might, you know, I suppose critics if I critics could say maybe it's a little bit, uh, maybe even a little bit Duke Ek Machina or a little bit convenient that it's Psycho Pirate, but it's really the only explanation. 
the only logical explanation was psychopirate. It explains all the behavior of all the inmates. It explains what the huntress is experiencing. It explains why uh, sometimes they act crazy and sometimes they act normal again. And it's all based on the fluctuating fluctuating state of mind of Roger Hayden, who is the psycho pirate. And everything here makes so much sense. And this is day 19. There's a huge riot here that plays out in this issue, and it's on day 19. We know day 24 is where the shit hits the fan. And so we know there's like basically there's five days left before the shit hits the fan that we saw in that, that basically that opening issue. And we know that things start to go catastrophically wrong after this. And and the irony here is that, you know, people are thinking that there's this miracle cure, this miracle drug cure that's for all these Arkham Asylum in uh, patients. But in fact, it's the very it's the very uh, doctor himself, uh, I guess, the psycho pirate, who is the one who's the most propped up on drugs and jolt and high caffeine drinks and he's the one that's keeping it all together it's inevitable that things are going to fall apart and it's uh it's really not surprising at all and there's a there's a tragedy to this because there's a vulnerability that all the citizens of gotham had they just come off of a day they just came off of a fear state and they're very vulnerable and and i think i think that there's a sense that everybody wanted a quick cure they it was so good to be true it was like we know it was too good to be true but they embraced it. Mayor Nakano and, and his wife, even his wife, while she's doubtful of there being a miracle cure, he wants it to be, he wants it to work. His wife wants it to work. He wants this to be legitimate. Uh, but and Dr. Ch- uh, Meridi- uh, Dr. Chase Meridian, she's working for the mayor. She She's double checking everything. She's she's there. She's, uh, it, she's basically giving counseling to the huntress. But there are certain things that she needs more information before she can recommend uh, recommend that Mernagano that give him the go ahead after which six million dollars is going to go straight to Dr. Tobias Ware and it's all just a long con it's a long con played by Dr. Ware uh, who's who basically I think in earlier issues when when a, a young a, a young Tobias Ware was having pizza he stole pizza money and he had it with his friend we now know that friend was Roger Hayden who would grow up to be psycho pirate and what I what I love here is uh, there's one particular point in this issue that I think points to a larger plot point that's going to play out. The huntress, the huntress after she the huntress takes out Nero. Uh, after she takes out Nero, she, the huntress before when she takes off, she goes. I have to remember. I have to remember this. The huntress already senses that she's going to lose her memory because the psycho pirate when he when he makes everyone go to sleep, he makes them forget. So when they wake up, they don't remember what happened. And but Huntress is going to do something to remind herself of what happened. She, as she says, I have to remember this. And we know that the Huntress is infected with the Hue virus, the Hue vial virus. And maybe it's her that her being infected by the Hue vial virus. She's going to do something to help her remember and keep her sanity, so that she can maybe help win the day at the end uh, before day twenty-four hits which we know to be the, the big day where the shit hits the fan. And we know that Dr. Tobias Ware is going to be thrown out the window and ultimately end up splattered on the pavement in front of Gotham PD as they stare at Arkham Tower and wonder what the hell happened. So I'm with you. I'm enjoying this. And I got to give Marika Tamaki here, even though this seems, it might seem maybe a little bit too convenient. I kind of like, I kind of like Psycho Pirate after dealing with Dark Dark Side. Dark Side either wipes him out or he gets resurrected again because of multiversal nonsense. He finds himself back on Earth Zero 
and he's desperate. He he needs to go somewhere, so he runs back to his childhood buddy, Doctor Tobias Ware, or, or or Tobias Ware, and there's a scam, and and Tobias has taken advantage of his friend. Uh, it it actually, strangely enough, and I think it actually even fits continuity wise with a little bit of uh, imagination, you know. So in my head canon, I can make this work, and you know. Again, uh, I'm actually, I'm really impressed with Huntress. I think Huntress is just kick-ass in this issue. I love the way she takes out Nero. And and uh, and I'm also impressed with the backup uh, feature, if you want to uh, talk about that first. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I love the fact that Tamaki at least tried to, to make it, you know, fit into continuity. You know, she can, she didn't just have him show up there. He's actually on the run for something. It's easy to, to think that what he's on the run from is, is Darkseid. As far as the the backup feature, you know, we've had this young boy. We've speculated that he could be Nero. We're not really sure, but we see him get uh, adopted in this particular issue, and he gets adopted by the Penguin, uh, and he's going to work in uh, the the Iceberg Casino, and he, he's left with a place to sleep and even a little bit of money. And, like Penguin's definitely making an investment in him, and it's it's an interesting perspective. And then when we see the kid get bullied. The penguin stands up for him, uh, almost literally. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so it's, yeah, it's adding more context to the story. And I love the, the thing that I love about it most is this underlying mystery. It, it's not overt that Matthew Rosenberg, the writer, gives us where it's like people in the story are saying, who's this kid? Who's this kid? But the fact that it's so focused on who this, it's so focused on the kid as the main and we're not sure as the readers who this kid is. It's this underlying question that you have all along as you're reading it. Like, why is this kid so important that he has this really well-crafted uh, story that's focused on him? You know, with great Fernando Blanco, really moody, gritty, street-level Fernando Blanco art and great colors by Jordi Belair that helps to perfect that mood. Like, it feels like this kid is uber important, but at the end of the day... Uh, it also, I think, would work in a way if the kid turns out to not be anybody important at all, and it just turns out to be a random penguin thug. That w- it would make the the story, the context of the story, completely different in a way. Uh, it would be more like, look at how the environment of Gotham City can lead some just an average kid down the path of becoming, uh, you know, a two bit criminal, basically working for one of these supervillains, yeah. uh, which is a different story, but still totally valid. So I don't know, still don't know where it's going. I love the mystery. Will this kid turn out to be somebody important? Will he not? Either way, I think I'm good with it because the story's so well done. So uh, yeah. what are your thoughts? I, I agree with you. I, I love the fact that, uh, you know, the penguin has a little bit of, this might be the penguin's protege. And I like the fact that this kid, uh, remember this kid was diagnosed by Dr. Harley Quinn, uh, by Harleen Quinzel as being someone who can't distinguish between capes, can't distinguish between a Batman and a Joker uh, in because of the early trauma. So how, what kind of adult is this kid going to grow up to be? And it's, it is also interesting to note that we, 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 we are experiencing in this last, in these particularly the last five years of DC, uh, an increasing number of legacy heroes. Well, what about legacy villains? Uh, we, we, you know, we, we got, we got John Kent, we've got Yara Floor, we've got, uh, Andy, we got all these, we got our superheroes having a next generation of heroes sprout, uh, you know, spring forth from their mythologies. 
why not from the villains more? Uh, and I, and I think that uh, you know I'm not saying that this is beginning going to start a trend or if this I, I I'm just saying that it's just occurred to me that this actually interests me. I mean you know to what extent is this kid? Maybe this kid we know this kid is is likely screwed up, but at the same time he's also being mentored by somebody who's a criminal mastermind. I mean the penguin say what you will about him maybe maybe like. Maybe he's like Tom King and he likes actually sleeping with penguins. Who knows? I don't know. But uh, uh, I will say that, you know, he's also a genius and it makes sense that these that these criminal gene, these criminal masterminds would have protégés and and that they wouldn't just all, you know, they wouldn't kill their protégés that at some point they might have a, a, a they might actually get along with their protégés and they're, they're not always going to betray each other. And having another legacy of villain, I think is a good idea. And they could, you know, who's to say the same can't be said for the Riddler and Clayface and well, Joker might be more problematic, but even the Joker's got punchline or Harley Quinn. So I really like this and I don't know who this kid is. Maybe it's going to be a new character, uh, but I like it. I really like where Matthew Rosenberg's going. And part of me is kind of hoping it's not Nero, although it could be with the red hair. Maybe that's a little bit uh, too obvious. Uh, Matthew Rosenberg is a new writer to DC. Maybe he wants to leave a mark by creating his own uh, next legacy Batman villain. So either way, I'm I'm being I'm entertained with this. Kudos to Marika Tamaki and Matthew and to Matthew Rosenberg on the on the backup. And again, Fernando Blanco on the on the arts, fantastic, perfectly suited for it. Yep, agree. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Batman number 120. This is The Abyss Part 3, Escape, from writer Joshua Williamson, Jorge Molina, and Mikhail Yanin as artists, Tameo More on colors, Clayton Cal on letters. We saw last time that Batman confronted Abyss, and Abyss blinded Batman. Uh, he gets the help of the detective that he's been working with to uh, in, in Banesia. Uh, to escape from the uh, the police station, and she she takes Batman back to her place, uh, and he's trying to figure out how, you know what's wrong with his eyes. Some somehow with no equipment or whatever, he he realizes it's nothing actually wrong with his eyes. It's actually something wrong in his brain with the vision center of the brain, uh, and then eventually goes into the prison where Batman Incorporated uh, is being held to try to rescue them. But despite all this that he can't see, he he is so formidable. And it, it's <laughs> I get that it's Batman, right? And he's he's just the greatest. But it makes no sense. Like he is blind. If you want him to be blind, Joshua Williamson, then make him blind. But it's like he's blind when you need him to be blind, and then for the parts of the story where it's like he can still see like how does he know where the doors are when he's running to escape, going to the route? Like, how does he know any of this stuff? I don't know. It doesn't really seem like he's blind, except we're told that he's blind. And he's certainly not up to the level that Batman would normally be. It's almost like Williamson needed him to be weaker than he normally is for because reasons for story, I guess. I don't know. It, it it's it's clumsy. It didn't feel like it was really working. Um, so that aspect of the story, I, I didn't really care for. And then the big reveal at the end is that these members of Batman Incorporated that have been accused of killing Abyss are actually working for Abyss. Abyss isn't even actually dead. And why? Uh, well, because they're all teaming up to kill Lex Luthor. Now, that part of the story, I don't mind necessarily. Uh and the fact that Lex Luthor is 
supplying uh, or or funding Batman Incorporated. That part of the story actually, I think, is my favorite part of the story. That's the story, part of the story that's working very well, even to the point where we see Luther uh, have some sort of bat armor, which I talked about this last time, uh, or maybe I talked about it on our DC Comic Talk, that we've had Luther previously as sort of a hero and part of the Justice League in some armor that made him look like Superman. Now we got to do the Batman thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's Lex Luthor is just a bad guy. So are, you know, is Bruce Wayne really going to be blind and Luther's going to step into Batman or call himself Batman? That feels a little bit wonky to me. I don't really understand. Like, can Luther just be Lex Luthor? Why does he have to be a version of Superman or a version of Batman? Um, so I, yeah, as far as him being involved, with Batman Incorporated and being the one that funds it, I really like that. But I just, the fact that like, I don't see Lex Luthor creating an armor and then putting the bat symbol on the chest that that's like giving credit to Batman in a way. Like I would, he'd put a big L on it or something, you know? So I, I don't know that, that I know I'm nitpicking a little bit, but that did bug me a little. So I'm still very curious where the story's going. Uh, and I still, like the international feel of it but yeah there are little parts of the story where i i they just don't they don't make sense in my mind like what why why is he what how come batman can fight and you know he knows where doors are and he can it's like he's not really blind i don't know that, that part bugged me so uh, i don't know what, what were your thoughts maybe you liked it better uh, than me. well i actually kind of agree with you that you know he seems to be uh surprisingly competent for someone who's blind to the point where he can actually somehow figure out through his own tech how he's blind or why he figures he's got nanotech in his blood and how he concludes that on the basis of what i mean you're blind you can't even look at the results uh, unless like does he have a fancy computer that gives him the results in braille and he knows how to read braille i mean i you know i mean it's just i mean it just seemed a little bit over the top i know he's batman but i kind of agree with you it's like well he's batman but you know uh, you know, again, it's it's that inclination to be uber Batman sometimes, but but that uh, I'm gonna let that go because what really works, sir. I absolutely love this detective Kea. Uh, she Kea, I mean, she's just awesome. I love the conversation between Detective Kea and Bruce Wayne. Uh, Bruce, Bruce, even though even though Batman is blind, he knows enough to sort of hide somehow know where where the shadows are to hide in the shadows so she doesn't see his face. Uh, she basically makes, she kind of reads, she's a pretty good at reading him. She says, your silence tells me you do have backup coming, but you don't want to ask for help. So she, she gets a good sense of the type of person and character that Batman is. And you could tell that maybe she's, they have maybe some, some things in common. And, and of course she uses her resources to try to get, to get Batman into they, the, the goal here is to break out Batman Incorporated because Batman knows that Abyss is still alive and that therefore Batman Incorporated, that is, that he believes that they're, Batman Incorporated is accused of killing Abyss. Since he knows Abyss is still alive, he knows it's all a setup. So he goes to break out Abyss. Meanwhile, Lex Luthor uh, is frustrated that Bruce that that Bruce Wayne didn't take him up in his offer to join Batman Incorporated, and Lex Luthor wants wanted uh, wanted Bruce Wayne to help him by becoming a member of Batman Incorporated and getting to the bottom of the Abyss uh, mystery. Well, of course, he goes to, Batman goes to break out Batman Incorporated because he thinks he's doing them a favor, but like you said, he finds out that 
Batman Incorporated is actually working for Abyss, and they manipulate and it. And Abyss actually previously, while Batman's trying to break out Batman Incorporated, Abyss is attacking Lex Luthor and leads Lex Luthor to the very prison that Batman is breaking Batman Incorporated out. And the shit all hits the fan at the same time. It kind of all seems a little bit convenient, but there's a cool factor here that I really love. I really love this. And I got to give full props to the, the art by Melina and Mikel Janine. Wow. This art really pops off the page. I really, really like the Lex Luthor in the bat symbol. I admit that what feels off about Batman wearing uh, sort of like Batman tech, while that felt a little off, it, it reminds me of a version of Lex Luthor that's one of my favorite. I really loved, I loved when Lex Luthor was a hero for a while. During, like, uh, particularly during the whole... Um, Forever Evil. Evil. Yeah, the Forever Evil storyline. That's one of my favorite versions of Lex Luthor. I like the version of Lex Luthor that's an anti-hero. And I agree with you that one of the things, I'll be more specific, one of the things that's a little bit off here, I get the sense that that Williamson had this this Batman story idea for a long time. And maybe he, he it's too bad he couldn't have told this story maybe sooner, like during the Forever Evil or maybe closer to, because quite frankly, this kind of conflicts in my mind with the Lex Luthor that's, uh, participating in the rising with Henry, uh, with John, with John Bendix in Superman, son of Kal-El. And the purpose of the rising is to get people to hate superheroes, to create a PR campaign to hate the superheroes that, that for Lex Luthor to participate in the rising and then turn around and want to be Batman. There's a huge conflict there that doesn't, that doesn't quite jive. I think that I don't think those two story plot ideas are, are, consistent with each other but again well how did how is how is lex luther even i mean he told the whole world that he was apex lex and leaned into dystopian and give all the villains power and what like how is he not like how is he even walking around yeah you know what i mean like he said the quiet part out loud you know like i think back to the burn days where uh superman could never make anything stick right he always protected himself it was always somebody else he could always blame it on somebody when he told the world he was a villain and he was sharing his power and he told everybody, he broadcasted the entire world that he was a bad guy. And now uh, we're just supposed yeah. to forget about that. He's yeah. back to being. Well, Tom Luther. Taylor tried to explain that in, in Superman, son of Kal-El that the annual, because Lex Luthor has all these lawyers and they couldn't prove it. And his, he was taken over and it was mind control and it yeah, was perpetual. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't buy it. I, I'll <laughs> buy the fact that he got his fortune back by tricking all those people, but yeah. I don't buy the fact that nobody's after no law enforcement agencies are after him. Cause okay. Maybe, maybe those lawyers worked in the United States. This was worldwide. This was worldwide. Yeah, I just feel like people would be going up anyway. I didn't mean to interrupt, but yeah, no, I, I no, forgot, it's all right. I forgot to, uh, forgot to mention that. One of the other things that I find actually kind of surprising here is all the members of Batman Incorporated are suddenly turning on Batman. I find that kind of surprising a little bit. Like all of them now, unless maybe they're all mind controlled. Maybe Abyss, if like remember Abyss seems to have some kind of nanotech that's making Batman blind. Maybe there's some nanotech that's controlling the behavior of other members of Batman Incorporated. Who knows? There's still a lot we don't know about Abyss. We don't know who he or she is. Who knows, right? So there are some open questions here, but I like it. I'm I'm really enjoying this. This is a this is a welcome change of pace from Fear State. This is a this is fast paced. This is. 
beautifully drawn. This is I love the new character, Detective Kea. I love the incorporation of Batman Incorporated. You can see Joshua Williamson's love for Grant Morrison. You certainly see it in his Justice League Incarnate that we're going to be reviewing next. And you absolutely see it here with the incorporation of Batman Incorporated, which was which all flows from uh, Grant Morrison's uh, Batman storyline. So, you know, uh, this is... Um, I'm I'm really enjoying this. I you know, notwithstanding the the craziness with Lex Luthor, the fact is I really like this version of Lex Luthor. <laughs> I'm not going to lie, and so I'm I'm prepared to forgive the continuity wonkiness in this particular case, anyway. So there you go. Maybe I'm a hypocrite, but you know, sometimes I embrace my hypocrisy. So <laughs> no, I mean that's all good. Uh, I if I so you know you loved that version of Lex Luthor where he was an antihero, so that makes sense that you know if this is, seems to be heading down that path that you would like this. I did not like that version of Lex Luthor at all. I really did not like it. So, you know, maybe that's why I'm struggling a little, a little more with this. But uh, anyway, there is a backup feature uh, that has Maps Maguchi from the Gotham City Academy story. Story art and letters by Carl Kershaw, colors by Dave McCaig. Uh, I don't really have much to say about this. Just like last time I, I mentioned, I haven't read Gotham Academy. So uh, you know, I don't, I'm not invested in Maps or Mia as her name is, but I will say that she's got a lot of spunk and I can see why people really, really love her. Um, even though Batman tells her, Hey, stay in the Batmobile. She knows he's in trouble and you know, those heroic tendencies will win out and she, she goes to try to, to help him and to find her friend who's missing Lindsay Okamura. So, uh, you might, I know you read Gotham Academy, so maybe you have more context, uh, for the backup Rocky. I don't think uh, I don't have a heck of a lot more context other than the fact that I like maps and she's very intelligent. And, and, and in this story, we, we know that she's uh, basically, she's trying to do the, the, the first, the last issue when we first met maps, she was basically doing her own investigations because some of her friends have gone missing and she fears that they were being attacked by the serial killer. And she takes it upon herself to do some investigating and inevitably she runs into Batman. She runs into Bruce Wayne at a sort of a party that her rich parents were having. And she ends up, uh, uh, and she lets it, very clearly, she makes an impression on Bruce Wayne and some of the comments she made about, you know, she seems to do, do, display some knowledge of the missing girls and ultimately it's not surprising when she ends up meeting up with Batman and here you know she ends up meeting up with Batman she ends up in the Batmobile and she's actually using the back computer or, or her own like phone here to, to actually Google uh, to, to Google the potential source of, of, of the killings and finds out that this this new this life this uh, the, this Kappa or these Kappa creatures are are from Japanese folklore and they, they like they, their favorite food is cucumbers which I find kind of funny and she she takes cucumbers with her and actually saves Batman as he's being attacked by these creatures yeah. and and it's funny when it when it when I saw cucumbers I just laughed because you know, because there's always that joke, and I I don't know if 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 it originated with Tom King or if he just stole it from other stories about you know Batman loves cucumber sandwiches. Alfred always makes Batman cucumber sandwiches, so I just for some reason I just sort of warmed my heart that you know of all things cucumbers are are, are going to distract this creature and, and and actually save Batman. And there's a part of me in the back of my head thinking you never know, Batman really likes cucumbers too. You know, maybe he's got one in his utility belt. You know, but he he normally eats it himself. But no, he's going to use it for the creatures. But that didn't happen, but in any event, um, it's it's clear that they're onto something, and I actually like this. And the funny thing is, you know how we were sort of, or at least, well, we were both complaining, maybe more so me, maybe both of us a little bit about the Robins series 
uh, Tim Seeley and that we don't really need another Robin. Well, the funny thing is, is that behind the scenes that we, we, Maps Mazaguchi here. She's always been sort of rumored as being sort of like the potential new Robin, but she's she's kind of the Robin that isn't. She doesn't really want to be Robin, but she she likes Robin. She kind of dresses up like Robin because she's she has fun with it, but she doesn't actually think she's Robin. She's not you know she just kind of has fun with it, and that's why I love this character so much. She's you know it's sort of like you know when I go to a comic con, I dress up like Indiana Jones, but I don't actually think. I'm Indiana Jones. I don't actually travel and, and want to have adventures like Indiana. Like, I don't actually, you know what I mean? I, Maps comes across the, just loves the concept of Robin and she she's just naturally curious and helpful. And that's why the character is lovable. And that's what really distinguishes her from all the other Robins is that she actually doesn't necessarily really want the job. She just kind of, she's a naturally curious person and just has fun with it. And there's a lot of fun with this story and that's what I, I, I love about maps and uh, and she's with Gotham Academy and I still say that there was more to Gotham Academy to love than currently what we're getting in Teen Titans Academy but that is a topic for another day. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, okay, last book we're going to talk about in detail it's Justice League Incarnate issue number four uh, written by Joshua Williamson and Dennis Culver. Chris Burnham does the art for pages one through ten. Mike Norton pages 11 through 23, and Andre Brezen, pages 24 through 30. Hi-Fi on colors, Tom Napolitano on letters. Really cool main cover by Gary Frank and Brad Anderson. Um, I'll just say a quick word about the art before I let Rocky dive into the story. Man, well, I was disciplined in the art for this one. Uh, th this book has had many artists, and they've all been very detailed in that DC house style. Uh, the entire time and then this just felt like a step back very much like simplistic art not that burnham doesn't do detail but his art is definitely more stylized and this is going to be jarring in the trade uh, i just don't, i don't understand choosing these artists to do this um and being that it's such a recap and uh and kind of a reformulation and very much could be a resource for new dc readers in terms of how do all these crises and events line up I would think you'd want to put your best foot forward, and I don't feel like DC did that with the art here. But, uh, but as far as the story goes, I, yeah, it, it's a recap. Then what we find out in the end about the darkness does make sense, but I don't know. For me, I just had a hard time getting past the art. Sort of a theme this week for me, um, and Darkseid ends up doing something that that uh, like he's supposed to be smart. You know, like he's supposed to be the big bad and uh, it just felt very tropey. Uh, and I don't have much more to say than, than that. Um, oh. I saved this for lat to read for last because I was <laughs> expecting a lot. Maybe that's my own fault. Maybe I brought too many expectations to it with only one issue left. No way this wraps up. So we're just waiting to find out, okay, what's the next story. And we've talked about it before. If you're going to continue, you know, you had Infinite Frontier and then the, the same story continued into Justice League Incarnate and now it's going to continue into something else. Just make it a big, long maxi series. Why are you dividing it up into separate minis and you're calling the separate miniseries different things? It doesn't make any sense. So I, I, I don't understand that. But anyway, what do you think, Rocky? Uh, man, I... Um... I feel like I'll, I'll at some point I'll have to do an individual, a separate video just to do a deep dive into this. There is, uh, this is one of those rare comics that, uh, or maybe it's not rare, but no, no, it's rare. Every single ex 
exposition box. Every single line of dialogue, almost every single line in the first seven pages for sure, tells something significant. This basically is the retelling of, for all those people who always say, and there's a lot of us, you know, as a longtime DC reader, I mean, we always joke about, oh my God, try to explain to some, try to explain to a lay person, original crisis and in infinite earths, infinite crisis, final crisis, metal and death metal. Okay. You got four paragraphs. Go. Well, good luck with that. Right. I mean, it's a little bit of a dog's breakfast. And yet for those of us who love the DC universe and embrace those big events, it's awesome. It's fun. It's multiversal. You got big bad guys. You got Madrick, uh, the, the monitor. You got the anti-monitor. You got dark side. You've got, you've got all these, uh, you got extant, you got all these, uh, uh, multiversal threats and, but try to explain all of that. And what Williamson does here, and I think he does a good job. I think he, 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 he dumbs it down and simplifies it in, in frankly, probably one of the best ways possible. Now I'm not saying he's, I don't think he's got it hundred percent right, but he explains it in a way that will work for the context of the story. And he centers the entire narrative around the concept of the great darkness. And essentially what he says that before, uh, originally we had, uh, be, there used to just be nothingness. The great darkness is nothingness. That's what it is. And when I say nothingness, I mean nothing. There's literally nothing. There's no, there's no darkness. There's no light. It's nothing. It's a, it's literally, it's not even a void. There, there's nothing there. And then all of a sudden there's a spark of light and then you've got perfect light, but you have a little flare of darkness and Within the light is the flaw, and that flaw is the great darkness. So the great darkness is always there within the light, and as and that 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 flaw, that darkness grew until we ultimately had the original crisis in infinite earths, and it it while it essentially it destroyed, we had the monitor representing the light and the anti-monitor representing essentially the great darkness. And the thing is about the great darkness that nobody ever knew. And the word in the phrase, the great darkness, that was never a phrase that was used in the original crisis. The, the great darkness was not a phrase that was used in the infinite crisis or even final crisis. It talked about dark side, but not the great darkness. The great darkness uh, has been referenced in the Legion of Superheroes, but arguably that, but, but not in the crisis itself. And what's interesting about that is that now when we look back at those events, we now see that the great darkness was utilizing some of the villains and they didn't even know they were being used. And so in, 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 to a great extent, the, all these villains are working in conjunction, likely some of them with the great darkness, and they might not even be aware of it, but dark side became self-aware dark side. No, knows that, the great darkness is something that he wants to control, but he also, it needs to be defeated and dark and dark side knows. And one of the things that's, it's been very apparent is that dark side has been working toward controlling the great darkness, uh, since final crisis, but the, his plan went to riot with Grant Morrison's final crisis because dark side didn't plan on dying. He didn't plan on, on bat on Batman shooting him with the, with the, with the radium gun, with the radiant gun and for dark side to die, uh, by soup, by Superman whistling a tune at the right frequency of, of the, of the multiverse. And it wasn't anticipated that Superman would make a wish on the miracle machine and wish everybody a happy ending at the end of final crisis. Williamson embraces his inner Grant Morrison here. At the end of Final Crisis, Superman wished a happy ending for everyone. But in doing so, 
the flaw was still there. The great darkness was still there. And the gentry in Grant Morrison's university, the, the empty hand, the great darkness formed an empty hand. Empty is thy hand. And the gentry formed and ended up on Earth 7, slowly building up its power. And the goal of the gentry is to establish and build an oblivion machine. And the purpose of the oblivion machine is to destroy and to take away the wish, to counteract Superman's wish at the end of Final Crisis. So that happy ending that Superman wished for everyone to have a happy ending, including the monitors at the end of Final Crisis, the oblivion machine will take all that away. So the, it's important that the heroes here prevent the gentry, empty is thy hand, preventing the gentry from completing the oblivion machine. And Darkseid, even Darkseid has the right agenda here. And Dr. Multiverse tries to tell the heroes of Justice League Incarnate, tries to tell President Superman, tries to tell the, the lot of them that, look, we need to help Darkseid defeat this, this, this the gentry and prevent the, the, the oblivion machine from being completed. And, uh, and, and ultimately, Dr. Multiverse essentially gives, she's got, she's got the power to heal the crack in the multiverse. And she gives Darkseid an aspect of that crack in the form of a lightning bolt. Darkseid uses it to try to take out the, the gentry, but it's all, it, it's, Darkseid has been fooled. And Darkseid is played for a fool because once the lightning, the lightning of that powerful doc, that, that energy from the multiverse, once the gentry has it, then the hand is no longer empty. Empty is thy hand. It's empty no longer. They now have the final energy that they need to create and complete the oblivion machine, which they can use to undo that wish and to take away the happy ending for all the multiverse. And the great darkness will swallow up the multiverse and ultimately infect other multiverses and therefore infect the entire omniverse inevitably. Empty is thy hand no longer. That's what's happening here. And this ends on a very, very gloomy note. And while this is happening, the one person that tries to stop it all, Flashpoint Batman, who is from a, a, an alternate timeline, Flashpoint Batman here tries to actually kill Dr. Multiverse because she's sided with Darkseid on this. And Darkseid kills, seems to kill Flashpoint Batman. And we know that Flashpoint Batman is likely still alive because we know we got Flashpoint Beyond coming from Jeff Johns uh, and Tim Sheridan and Jeremy Adams are going to be co-plotting and co-scripting Flashpoint Beyond. So likely Flashpoint Batman is going to come back in that particular one-shot or series. But it's interesting here, you know, now that Darkseid, Darkseid is, is squashed by the, by the, by the gentry, this issue or this, this, this powerful black, this powerful creature on earth seven, Darkseid is seemingly squashed. Maybe is he, is he killed? Is he dead? Meanwhile, uh, Grail and, and Calabac and, and all of the, all of Darkseid's forces are, are fighting a losing battle. And, and meanwhile, Meanwhile, President Superman, <laughs> along with the rest of the Justice League Incarnate, they're trying to re to basically rebuild the Hall of the House of Heroes satellite that crash landed on Earth Seven. And but while they're doing that, they're they're attacked by Aqua Woman and and uh, and and all these other possessed Mary Marvel and all these and Orion and all these other 
heroes which have been possessed by the great darkness on Earth-7. And that's that's how it ends. And we get so much in this issue. And I, I could say so much more, the ramifications of this. But know this, if you want to get a handle on all the crises explained in, in as simple a manner as possible. And if you don't think it's simple, I'm sorry, it doesn't get more simple than this. And I'm not saying it's simple. You, you got to reread this. You got to take your time and read it to really get into it. And you're either going to like it or you're not going to like it. But I, I, I give a lot of credit to Joshua Williamson. He's, he's actually explained concepts that were in Final Crisis better, I think, than Grant Morrison did. He simplifies it in a way that I think is more reader-friendly than Grant Morrison's writing is in many ways. I got to give him credit on this. And I really enjoy this. I didn't, I didn't mind the art so much, it, uh, although I do wish I missed George Perez's classic art. I, 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 I kind of agree with you early on. The, uh, the art by, um, who is the, uh, the art by uh, Burnham, Chris Burnham. I don't think it's appropriate for, uh, for the, for the early pages on describing the, the, the history of the various crises. I think that was a, I think that was a, I think that was probably a, a, a poor choice of an artist. I don't think it quite works, but it's serviceable and the colors are great and the story works for me. I'm really excited to see where this is going. Th things seem really dire right now because it looks like the gentry has won. They've got the final piece for the oblivion machine. If they undo, if they undo the wish that was made through the miracle machine by Superman at the end of final crisis, all of a sudden the happy ending that, that Superman wished for all the multiverse is taken away and then we're really screwed. And so <laughs> I don't know, man, I'm as a D as a long time DC reader, I've been reading a long time. I'm really excited for this. And, um, but I don't know if, if like for new readers, I don't know if they're going to maybe get as much out of this as I do, but I love it. I know that was long winded of me. I apologize. But, uh, what do you think of it, Jace? Yeah, I mean, there's just there's problems, right? I mean, anytime you run on something, I do give Williamson a lot of credit for trying to make it make sense. I don't necessarily give him as much credit as you for making things simpler than Grant Morrison, because I think anybody who writes a comic just <laughs> by putting pen to paper makes things simpler than Grant Morrison does. His stuff is overly complicated um, because he's, I don't know, sometimes I feel like he's trying to prove he's the smartest guy in the room. Um so yeah, the the problem is that th these are retcons, and when you go back and read the original stuff, it doesn't fit, right? So in a way, it's like God, there there's a part of me that wishes that DC would just quit messing with its history, but at the same time, I know there are creators. I mean, I just had a fantastic conversation with Jerry Conway, and he talked about that being a strength of DC that they're constantly rebooting, so you can do new things and and support that idea of illusion of change. But yeah, it's convoluted. It doesn't all make sense, but you kind of take it with a grain of salt. At the end of the day, I'm just ready for whatever crisis, big crisis is coming to start happening. And let's get the new status quo and start building new stories. And, and, you know, right now, things are really complicated in the DC universe. And they use these crises to sort of clean things up and make it a little simpler. And everybody's kind of, you know, you hit the reset button. Everyone's on the same page. Um Obviously, with what we talked about with the Omniverse and dumping the goldfish bowl into the ocean, like I said, things are more complicated than ever. I wouldn't mind some some cleanup, but we've talked about that before. Um, whether that'll work or not it remains to be seen. And the other aspect of this that I've mentioned before, we've talked about Justice League Incarnate, is how this is seemingly a very important story that's going to reset the DCU, but we don't see it referenced in any other books in the DC line. 
which I think is sort of strange. Uh, and then the only other thing that I'll point out was just in terms of, uh, yeah, right there on that page that you have on uh, on YouTube right now. Yes, Thomas Wayne is the only one that tries to stop this, but seemingly possessed by the gentry. You know, he go, he says, "Oh, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna knock out uh, uh, Doctor Multiverse." When in fact, President Superman's like, "I can see microscopically what you were giving her. That's poison. That's gonna kill her." And then, oh, come to find out, it looks like Thomas Wayne is possessed by the, the great darkness himself. This seems like it, you that Joshua Williamson has reduced Thomas Wayne Batman, Flashpoint Batman, to a plot device. Because the only thing I can think, the only seemingly reason to do this is to th- basically fool Darkseid into thinking, okay, the, the multiversal power, the power that Dr. Multiverse has is needs to be destroyed. The gentry seems to th- be implying that Dr. Multiverse and her power that she has of containing this multiversal crack is a threat to the gentry. When in fact, what the gentry wants is for Darkseid to take that power and stab the gentry with it so the gentry can steal that power. So That's actually brilliant. That's a brilliant move by the gentry to do that. Because it, right, it I, and I yeah, I, I I agree with that, but at the same time, you're reducing what is my favorite character in the in the Justice League Incarnate, Thomas Wayne Batman, because he's actually acting like the Flashpoint Batman and not the crazy Flashpoint villainous Batman that Tom King turned him into. Uh, but you've turned my favorite character into nothing but a plot device. So you know, I'm not going to be happy about that. But we know he's not gone, as Rocky said. Flashpoint Beyond is is on its way. So yeah, yeah, is this convoluted? Yes. Will long time DC fans like it? Probably. Will new readers be as confused as ever? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so it's definitely for the, the, you know, this is DC, DC expert level reading. If you we yeah. want to grade it out like that. Uh, I should also say though, uh, we shouldn't discard it. It might be that flashpoint Batman will return in this series. We never know because yeah, remember that we, we do well, know there's only that one, we don't there's know. There's only one issue left. Well, yeah, uh, fair enough. But we also, uh, but we we also know that that there's something strange about Thomas Wayne. He is an aberration. He shouldn't exist because he's he's from an he's the Flashpoint timeline is not actually a, a universe. It's it's a it's an offshoot timeline of Earth Zero. So that's what makes it so odd that he he's, he even exists to begin with. So he's kind of an aberration. And so um, at a minimum, it's, it, it, it basically raises the stakes. And you, I got to wonder if, I got to wonder if, if any of that's going to play into Flashpoint Beyond, or maybe he might, he end up appearing next issue. You, you, you never know. But anyways, yeah. Um, yeah. But are you, are you intrigued by this? Like, are you uh, interested enough? Are you getting this? Or is this, is this something where you, I, are you happy with this series overall? Or are you, cause I'm, I'm actually content with it. I, I'm, I'm, con- I'm happy with it. I, it actually is better than I thought it would be. But what, what about, you? What's your I, general I, no, I wouldn't say, I, I feel like some potential is being wasted here. And again, I, I don't put all the blame on Joshua Williamson. If, if this series, and, and again, I say series, <laughs> If this series of series, because, you know, starting with Infinite Frontier and now moving to this, Justice League Incarnate, and then whatever comes next, if these are that important, if these are laying the groundwork for the next big crisis that's going to reset the DC Universe, then, like, marketing-wise, editorial-wise, more attention should be placed on this, and it's not. And I think that's a failure on DC's part. In terms of the actual story itself, 
yeah, I mean, it's 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 intriguing. I'm I'm definitely intrigued, but I'm I want to get there. I'm a little impatient with it. I want to get there because, again, I think the DC universe is too complicated right now. I think this idea that Scott Snyder had of taking the goldfish bowl of the DC universe and dumping it in the ocean, I think it was a huge mistake. As much as I, I'm a big fan of Scott Snyder, I think it was a mistake. It makes it too complicated. I get that creator-wise, it opens up all kinds of freedom, and that's great. But I think as a creator, you owe some responsibility to the continuity of the, the universe that you've chosen to create your stories in. And you're basically, you know, you've, I get that you've given them creative freedom, but you've made it too hard for anybody to, the, the barrier of entry has become too hard. It's already hard enough to get new people to read comics. And when you say everything counts, everything matters, nobody can make sense of it. It makes it tough to convince new readers to jump on. So uh, I, I guess, yeah, there's potential being wasted. I think this could be doing, this could be better, but I don't blame Joshua Williamson. I don't blame the creative team. Uh, I think it's a failure editorially or, or marketing wise uh, at the end of the day. So we'll see. I mean, maybe the big event, they'll, they'll push it and everybody will jump on board and it'll be well received and people will kind of go back and, and look at these and, and see them for what they are. And I won't feel that way in the long run, but I guess we'll have to wait and see. Uh, okay. The only other book out this week in terms of singles that we didn't cover, The Joker Presents a Puzzle Box number seven which is a digital first comic. We get uh, the seventh issue in print. And then there is uh, a, a collection, a trade paperback. Batman White Knight presents Harley Quinn, trade paperback, which was written by Katana Collins uh, and Sean Murphy contributed to the story as well. Sean Gordon Murphy, it's in the, that Sean Gordon Murphy verse, as they call it. It was fantastic. It's a much more uh, cerebral version of, of Harley Quinn. And I really, really enjoyed it. Um, other than that, yeah, we talked about everything else. So solid week of, uh, of DC books, like we said. Uh, I mentioned the Jerry Conway interview that we uh, did recently. Highly encourage you guys all to go and, and listen to that. It was it was fantastic. I mean, such a legendary creator. You know, the Detroit Justice League, the Vixen. Uh, he's the first one to put uh, Carol Danvers in the Miss Marvel costume. He created Firestorm, Killer Frost, Black Bison, Uh I mean, the list goes on and on. The Punisher, for God's sake. Yeah, I Tarantula, listened. To, I like, listened to that interview, and I just uh, compliments. It was very good, and I I, I particularly loved uh, Jerry Conway's comments about Firestorm. One of my, uh, he was he was one of my favorite characters back in the eighties. I loved Firestorm. Uh, you know, uh, Professor Stein and and, yeah. and Raymond and, and Ronnie Raymond and there that dichotomy and and his his reasoning and why he came up with the concept and what he was comparing it to and the inspiration for it. It was very it was very interesting and his comments about how about Spider Man and about you know how they're you know the the, the, the he questions the degree to which they maybe uh you know abandoned sort of like the teenage Peter Parker and the best versions of the characters very interesting comments from someone who's uh basically a legend in the industry and who's not afraid to talk politics cuz he wasn't he wasn't afraid to talk politics in the early part of that interview either <laughs> Yeah, that that was on me. I was like, man, we really need to get to comics. You got him going. I find his, yeah, I find his political beliefs so interesting because usually people of his generation are, you know, far to the right, and he's so he's so libertarian. It's uh, it's fantastic. So yeah, I highly encourage. It was one of my favorite interviews I've ever done. It was fantastic. So highly encourage you guys all to go check that out. And obviously, Daily Spawn is continuing as well. Uh, what about you, Rocky? You got anything for uh, the folks coming up soon? Uh, well, I do have a review of issues two and three of uh, Brian Bendis and uh, Stephen Burns' uh, Joy Operations. 
I think it's a very interesting, uh, a very interesting story and mythology being crafted by uh, Brian Bendis, but I think more so being crafted by artist Stephen Byrne, who I think is at the is he's bringing his a game to that title and uh i'm hoping some people more people will check it out and uh, look i'm not a huge fan of dc of bendis's dc work but i do think his joy operations is worth uh worth a gander by some people because i think it's i think it's i think he's channeling his inner hickman a little bit and uh stephen byrne is you know is just absolutely kicking it on the art so uh i'm gonna be doing that and i think i'll probably be doing a deeper dive into uh Justice League incarnate here, uh, you know, uh, but yeah, beyond that, uh, yeah, and maybe I'm going to try to find some time to join you again for uh, uh, daily spawn daily. So I got to catch up. Yeah, on spawn's my been, yeah, <laughs> I've been having so much fun. It's been a joy reading spawn. I never would have expected this. I like it's, it's so fun. It's just fun. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, in a way, it's mindless entertainment. There's not all this crazy continuity that we're talking about with Justice League Incarnate and all that kind of stuff. It's just Spawn, uh, and poor Al Simmons can never catch a break, and Todd McFarlane <laughs> seems to <laughs> just constantly be putting him through the ringer. Uh, and the art's always fantastic. So, yeah. uh, anyway, we really appreciate everybody joining. Uh, don't forget, if you're listening to the audio only, head over to YouTube, subscribe, subscribe to Rocky's channel. It's Comic Boom, Comic Space Boom, exclamation point on YouTube. So you don't miss any of the content he puts out, make sure you ring that notification bell and like this video. Conversely, if you check us out on YouTube all the time and you want to be sure not to miss out on things like that great Jerry Conway interview, just go to your uh, favorite podcast platform or podcast app on your smart device, do a search for the comic source and subscribe there. So uh, once again, we appreciate everybody joining as always, and we'll talk to you next time. See you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes, as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.